everyone, and welcome to a brand new episode of The Wrap right here on the Fike Media Network. It's a brand new week here in WWE. We are under two weeks away until WrestleMania Backlash, where we run over the entire WrestleMania card again in a more smaller and intimate setting. But we're here to get you ready for all things Backlash 2022. I'm Keela Cash, and along for the ride, as always, is my co-captain, my right-hand man, the wise man, and sometimes advocate for Von Wagner. I bring to you, per the usual, Scott Young. Welcome back, Scott. Thank you for having me, Keela. It is always a pleasure to chop it up and talk all things WWE with you. I'm very excited for this show. Um, you know, just the the small conversation that was had off the air has me very excited at the prospects at what this conversation is going to bring, especially with our third host, who has come prepared with notes. I'm yes, scared. He has a list. The list of fine stone. He's back once again, a member of the Fike Media family. And what Scott alluded to is probably the biggest ounce of shade he's throwing at me off the air thus far. And we might allude to what he said earlier <laughs> on this show, but I'm still recovering from this. If I sound a little funny, that's why, because I'm still in shock at what he said to me as if it was a compliment and it was a backhand compliment. It was a backhand slap. And I felt it virtually. I felt it in my spirit. But in any event, I bring to you, as always, <laughs> the third guy in the chair as I pop him again. I bring to you all Jeremy Finestone. Welcome back, Jeremy. Thank you both for having me. I'm kind of surprised we didn't do a 2.0 edition of the uh, start based off of everything we we're just talking about. <laughs> the reboot <laughs> of the reboot. It would be fitting in this situation. I actually thought, you know, I gave a pretty good analogy. Um, you know, I, I felt really good about it. Keela shot me down. She broke my heart um, and then stomped on it. So that's OK. You know, it's, uh, it's what relationships are built on. And, and, and we're going to be stronger for this. This was a nice team building exercise from hell. Team building exercise. And I, and I won't forgive this. I understood oh. the intention the moment he said it. And... We might get to it eventually, but until then, <laughs> I do want to like break the ice a bit because it is NBA playoff season. And I do want to know who are you repping in the playoffs? Who are your teams if they're still in it for this playoff season, Scott? Who are you rooting for? Man, I'm about to catch hell for this. I'm a Bron guy. So, you know, I, I was going with the Lakers. I was rooting for the old men. I thought that, you know, they were able to pull some Uncle Drews out of their hat, but that was not to be. So now I, I think the I still the root the team I still think was gonna win were the Bucks. I still had them going back to back, but I was definitely rooting for the Lakers and they're not in it. So now I just get to root against Steph Curry and Kevin Durant. Boo hiss to one of those names. To both of them. See, now we are 0 for 2 on this show. <laughs> Just the, fr <laughs> the friendship that we have formed for the last six or so months is cratering before my very eyes. So I'm disappointed again. But at least... Your chair to the back. Yes. Like Seth Rollins to like Roman Reigns. I feel insulted. I feel betrayed again. But at least AARP didn't make the playoffs this year. Ooh. Just saying. Just saying, you <laughs> That's know. That's fair. I'll take that. Street clothes and old geezers didn't make the playoffs this year. I got to go Barkley on you. <laughs> but Jeremy, <laughs> who are you 
as I sit here slack jawed like Dean Ambrose watching you two, uh, I, I am not much of the basketball fan as I am other sports, but uh, blue and gold in the Bay Area as long as they're standing tall. Warriors all day. Smart decision. I am a Hawks fan. I don't have hope right now, even though we're like down to one. We play tonight, I believe, and I'm pulling for them. But I'm also a fan of the Golden State Warriors, Steph Curry, Klay Thompson all day. Sorry, Scott. My apologies again. I'm a big Klay Thompson fan. I, I genuinely love everything about Klay Thompson's game. Um, I just I can't rock with Steph and Draymond, man. I, I just I can't get with them. That is so sad. You could be rooting for winners. I do. I root for Braun. Well, he's he just, not winning this year. He's a he's loser at home yet. tweeting about what could have been. That's <laughs> what he's he doing right now. Out of the, went this way out of the regular season. Hey, Lim- Braun, Lim- Braun Lim- hooped though. Braun hooped though. He he did all he could, you know, but when you, when you plan, when you plan with a seven foot glass figure, you know, and then, and then you just have Sonic the Hedgehog with no brakes running your point. You, <laughs> there's only so much you can do. You know what I'm saying? And I don't think either of them play had a bad season, but it is what it is. We'll, we'll go to next year. Braun's just trying to get to play with his kid. That's all yes. he's trying to do. There, he just wants there, to play with There's some metaphorical uh, Dikembe Mutombo. We're just batting you away. We're like, uh-uh, not this time. <laughs> Reverse. Not this time for LeBron. <laughs> Reverse Space Jam is that team, but, you know, the same. I don't. I don't like how this show has started. Um, I, <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm not happy with that. There's been a lot of LeBron hate, Steph Curry all over the place. I, this is not a good start to the show. At least I know we're gonna we're gonna show some love to my boy later on. So at least I know I have that to look forward to. You know, yes, and we all are gonna show love to a certain Viper, and it's a very exciting time for him. But this is by far my favorite opening to this show to date because shading. Scott Young after he shaded me brings me much joy as we segue into Monday Night Raw which went down live from I believe Buffalo New York and it was a show it was a show of sports entertainment proportions and we got everything from weddings to one dollar fines to lie detector tests and so much more but above all else we got a bit of betrayal as we have predicted for weeks on this show that Rhea Ripley would in fact stab Liv Morgan in the back and she did so this past Monday when she ate the loss in the women's tag team championship match she teamed with Liv alongside or against I should say Sasha Banks and Naomi and that was a seven minute match that was not better than the one they had on SmackDown several weeks before WrestleMania, but Rhea ate the loss and she was angry at Liv. They traded words and Rhea attacked Liv from behind, beat her ass, hit her with the riptide, and now she is on that heel trek towards Edge's Brood Club, I presume, and I'm happy, but I'm afraid because of the presentation of Edge's crew so far. And I hope we don't get dumbass lighting for Liv, or shall I say Rhea, maybe Liv too. Maybe she'll be corrupted as well at some point. But right now, it's about Rhea Ripley finally being free from the tag team ranks after six long months of just disappointing matches and championship defenses and championship rematches. So now she's able to be be on her own, possibly be a pillar against Bianca Belair for the Raw Women's Championship, preferably at SummerSlam at the earliest. So Scott, what are your thoughts on Rhea finally flipping on Liv Morgan and possibly joining Edge's heel brood crew? 
So, <clears throat> you know, I, I've been one of the people that have been talking about her joining the group and think it'd be a good fit. But looking at it now, I almost think she would be better off just staying by herself and not losing a match until SummerSlam where she should face Bianca Belair. I, I, I think that should be the matchup you build to because I even think you could, man, as crazy as it sounds, you could have Bianca lose that title to Rhea as this dominant heel who's not losing. Bianca have to fight her way back, maybe even win another. Like you could, There's a lot you could do with these two in this story, but Rhea does not need to lose a match until SummerSlam. She shouldn't have lost this match. Why is she taking... Liv Morgan's right there. I mean, she is right there, just sitting there looking nice and pretty, doing a great job in the corner for the boss that is Rhea Ripley. She should have taken the loss. I mean, that that's 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 as simple as it as it is. I will say this: the tag um, the tag team of Sasha and Naomi they are definitely growing on me. I I, I enjoyed them a lot more than I have in a few weeks. But I, I I think Rhea should be going on an undefeated streak, looking dominant. And instead of Rhea, I might actually have Liv Morgan kind of go down a dark side and be like, what do I do next? And that's where Edge, Damian Priest are like, come join us. I think she has a little bit of a crazy side to her that could work in that group. So I would keep Rhea separate, let her do her own thing, be this monster destroyer heel. And maybe let Liv go down a dark path. And here comes Edge and Damian Priest to kind of talk, to, you know, give a guiding hand to. That makes more sense because Liv has been betrayed many times on Raw and SmackDown with tag teams going asunder. So I can definitely see the possibility of her joining the Brood crew. She'd be a great fit. And Rhea Ripley is much better off as a loner who is able to forge her own path as a heel and eventually go up against Bianca Belair. Because the one thing you don't want to do is have her lumped in with a crew that is going to be all in with the supernatural. And to me, that does not fit Rhea Ripley in the least. I do see that a bit more for Liv Morgan to let loose, unleash the crazy side a bit more. And that'll make this heel turn a bit more organic for both ladies if WWE chooses to go in that direction. But I do agree with you in that Rhea Ripley should not have lost on Monday. That was a bad look. Liv, as you say, was right there for the pin, right there for the taking. And WWE and their booking decisions continue to boggle the mind. So, Jeremy, what are your thoughts on Rhea Ripley finally turning on Liv Morgan? And who do you prefer to be the loner or the groupie in terms of who's going to be joining the Edge Brood crew? You know, I'm going to I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to just trust Sean Rossap when he said that the plan was for Rhea to join the uh, the interbrood with the vampire crew and figure out uh, their status there. And I think there's there's a lot to mine from that. Uh, one of the things I wanted to mention about the match first, though, was uh, Scott. I don't know if you noticed this, but in the finish, Liv actually fucked up and she was supposed to take the backstabber and ricochet into the pin, but because she lost her balance and fell over, Sasha had to break up the pin, which completely messed up the dynamic of why Rhea was going to lose her mind with Liv. It would have made a better story, but the way that it presented it, you're you're totally right in that the criticism just made her look uh, typically weaker as a result. The other thing I want to think about is like there there's a certain aspect of this that uh, Liv is now like the Marty Jannetty. Because when you have a WWE tag team break up, a lot of times there's a spotlight featured on one of them, and then the other one is kind of used as the stepping stone and then, you know, pounded into the ground, if you will, a little bit. So 
I'm a little worried for Liv on that one. I think it's right that she should stay as a face building themselves back up. Um, she's the perfect example of someone who's not really ready for a world title, but if they had a mid-level women's title uh, as like a stepping stone, which I don't know if WWE would ever do, she'd be the right kind of person to be carrying it. Uh, as, for, as for Rhea, there are, there are a lot of potential with her being the, a top heel on on the raw side. Uh, one of the things that I'm looking forward to is if she's with Edge, it's a potential showdown with Beth Phoenix one day for the quote unquote like soul of Edge before next year's WrestleMania, maybe like the Royal Rumble or something. Uh, the ideas like that really give me uh, optimism because I do see Rhea as potentially the next world champion on the raw side uh, after SummerSlam, something like that. But uh, generally, just the whole, the whole future for Rhea and what she has got going on, I'm pretty optimistic about it. I think it's time for her to take that next step into uh, dominance in the female division. Me too. I go back to where she was three years ago when she was in NXT UK. Then she came stateside and got in Shayna Baszler's face and said, bitch, I want your championship. I'm not scared of you or your horsewomen. I miss that Rhea Ripley, the one that was fearless and was kind of heelish, but cool at the exact same time. And I do love the idea of Rhea Ripley versus Beth Phoenix at some point because Beth is playing her part very well on Twitter. She is not here for the edge. She'll turn. She says, what's wrong with him? That's not the husband I know and love. This isn't right. So she's playing it straight as the wife who disapproves of the change. And Rhea, and Rhea might be the one to tap into his dark side. And she might come back to fight for his soul at the Royal Rumble or WrestleMania. I dig it. It's, it's a nice way to acknowledge the past and push the future in Rhea Ripley, who is going to be a force in the women's division at long last. I do hope with this hill turn, because she's been languishing for a very long time. I thought that she was rushing to the women's championship last year a bit too early due to Charlotte Flair getting COVID right in time for WrestleMania season, unfortunately. And I just felt like she was pushed before she was ready. She was in catering for months. She wasn't ready for the moment against Asuka. They had some herky-jerky matches for a while, but eventually when you work together more and more, that chemistry does gel and it does click, and they did so in the latter stages of their feud, but Rhea Ripley definitely has what it takes to be a top-tier dominating force in this Raw Women's Division alongside Becky Lynch and the champion Belair, and there's hoping that WWE handles her properly in terms of booking and creative moving forward if they edit the Edge Brood Crew aspects of lighting for every fucking fight sequence <laughs> but you know the the problem with what you said Keela is because you're absolutely right that Rhea right there that you talked about that walked up in Shayna's face and was like yo I'm here and I'm, I'm coming to take over the reason we can't do that now is because we don't have that dominant heel like Shayna Baszler for Rhea to step up to we don't have that there is no other heel on the roster or on the raw roster that is, I mean, even close to the level that a Shayna Baszler was. And I think that's where Rhea Ripley is going to shine. She can be that top tier, like monster heel that, I mean, that they need that you just keep strong and you keep dominant because that's what, that's what that women's division is missing. That's what Bianca Belair is missing. And I, I keep bringing them two up together because they should be synonymous with each other. Like, I mean, they should be each other's greatest rivals. They should be the parallels. They should be like like the John Cena, Randy Orton. Like they should come up together, be compared to each other and have just great careers alongside each other. And then when they clash, it should feel like a big deal. 
And she fills that void perfectly. And because I, I think what you said is just spot on. And it made me realize we don't have that dominant badass heel for the baby faces to be like, no, we're not taking it anymore. I'm coming for you. So until we get that, we won't have we won't be able to have moments like that. And that's where Rhea Ripley comes in to fill that void. Yeah. And to be that force outside of what she did on NXT UK in the Mae Young Classic nearly four years ago, she can be that now. She can be the ace heel in that division. And here's hoping that WWE goes all in on Rhea Ripley because she really has what it takes to be a standout star and will be Bianca Belair's greatest rival for the championship or without it because they produce magic together dating back to their time in NXT. And we get like a little taste of that on the main roster recently, but I want more. A full-blown, fully realized back and forth feud with a great story layered in for the championship let that be the story heading into the summer and i think this hill turn will be a success and speaking of successes we had some successful sports entertainment segments on monday night raw and speaking of bianca belair reparation season part two is in effect (laughs) as sonya deville tried to threaten bianca belair if you touch me i'm gonna fine you i'm gonna strip you of your championship i'm gonna suspend you and bianca did pick her up for for a kod attempt and she put her down when sonya threatened her but our guy scrap daddy adam pierce had our backs this week when he made Bianca Belair pay a $1 fine for putting her hands on Sonya Deville. And I shed a tear, Scott. I cried tears of joy knowing that Juneteenth is upon us and we've it's got coming. an early blessing via this $1 fine. Oh, you, you know, I, I'm all for this. And I, I would like to give a big shout out to Adam Pierce X uh, for really stepping up to the plate right there and, uh, you know, delivering the 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 reparations that were needed to uh miss miss karen deville this is uh i mean they have to be aware of, of how this looks right they, they just have to be aware of what's going on i think even adam pierce is looking like look y'all ain't gonna have me mixed in with this i know what's coming i know in a couple months i i i got black friends i know what's coming i ain't, y'all ain't gonna have me looking bad on tv this is re- this is crazy this whole thing just don't sit right with me can we get her to feud with anybody else she better not be. Let me. I need her to feud with Liv Morgan next. <laughs> That's the only way I'm accepting Sonya Deville. She needs to feud with Liv Morgan next. Maybe she can get in Becky's face when it's all said and done. There we go. There That's we go. progress. Great, you know, way, great, way to turn Becky, great way to turn Becky face. Yes, that would be the way to do it. Fighting the authority from within. That would be the storyline to get Becky over as the man once again. So, Jeremy, what are your thoughts on Bianca Belair paying a $1 fine? And thankfully, I found people that watched Atlanta a couple of weeks ago and said that was, in fact, the big payback. That was an epic all-timer segment. And I'm... I'm not going to lie. I legitimately want to know who who produced that segment and how they got away with it, because that's not something that uh, WWE is particularly clever enough, usually to uh, or or nuanced enough to really kind of hit that kind of note. But with that said, I loved it. I thought it knocked it out of the park. It was just one of those so completely unlike what you are expecting to see on WWE TV to have like a clever little gotcha get back. Uh, That's just so quick on the draw and the and you were able to understand and comprehend it in the moment and the the seriousness and the comedy of it at the same time. It, It was really good. I 
I was just very surprised that I would love to know more about the uh, the behind the scenes on that one. If 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 you wanted to peel the curtain back a little bit, I have the answer to that question. Hmm. I do. Cody Luther King was <laughs> well then <laughs> was the executive producer of that segment. You oh, know, I thought Brandy was a new uh, hire. <laughs> Now uh, you, she you know she would have came out. She definitely would have came out and been like, "Y'all, y'all thought this was open mic night. What y'all <laughs> thought this was? Y'all already know how that would have started." Oh, uh, uh, walked into that one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I will say that is an all time legendary line by Brandy. That might have been her finest work. Who told you it was open mic night, bitch? If she ever says that to Becky Lynch, I will pop off my couch. I will cry. I will laugh. I will roll over and I will say, Brandy, it will never get better than this. Now go back home. But how how many times, uh, how many times is somebody going to be able to print the same shirt in two different companies? That you gotta do is change true. a couple words. Yes. You gotta do is change a couple words. Yes, make it friend. Now listen, they did print the Jimmy Uso Nobody's Bitch T-shirt last year, so it's doable. We can make exceptions. I'm still surprised New Japan didn't get upset with Roman Reigns' G.O.D. shirt. Yeah, that was... Mm. I was bold. That was bold. Hey. Mm-hmm. They got away bold. with it. Yep. They slipped through the trademark, so like, okay. All right. Cool. Very slick by WWE Shop. They do have good shirts from time to time. <laughs> As we segue to lie detector tests and Chad Oof. Gable... Wearing the Letterman sweater as if he is a character on Happy Days. I did love that very much, actually. But, you know, Ezekiel, he's good for a laugh or two. But we have to remember, we never loved Ezekiel or Elias for his wrestling. Because once he gets in the ring, it gets boring fast. He's not the greatest worker. And even though I loved aspects of the lie detector test, especially Kevin Owens saying, we got him. And Chad's like, I told him to lie on purpose, to test the test, Kevin. He's telling the truth here or is supposed to lie on purpose. I did love that. And Kevin Owens paying Chad Canadian dollars and firing him on site for not doing his job, even though Chad did his job and Ezekiel was fine in this setting. But ultimately, the joke is going to run out of steam because Ezekiel is going to wrestle and bore us to tears, which he's tend to do, which he has tend to do for his entire career with very few exceptions, Jeremy. So what are your thoughts on the lie detector test involving Kevin Owens, Ezekiel, not Elias, and Chad Gable? I want to specifically compliment to the highest degree Kevin Owens and Chad Gable for their stellar work in making me completely entertained for the entirety of the segment, which had no business working. And most of the time I would be grousing on Twitter about how dumb this is. I'm not going to compliment Ezekiel because I do believe that if he were replaced with a cactus, the segment would be just as funny and just as effective. So I applaud him for not messing anything up, minus his own catchphrase once or twice. Other than that, stellar work by everybody again. Now, I did hear Scott sigh audibly, like he was not the biggest fan of this lie detector test. So do you think Maury would have done a better job in this setting, (laughs) trying to get the truth out of Elias or find the lie within the truth? I not only think Maury would have been better off, I think no one delivers the line that that was a lot better than Maury. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I definitely would have taken Maury in this. And it was fine. I mean, I, I, like you both have mentioned, K, KO and, and Gable, they they did a great job. Ezekiel is Ezekiel. Like, I, this is 
this is overexposure. And I'm somebody who is kind of for this because I think you can build to Elias coming back and, and it being a big deal and people getting behind it. But if you're going to keep showing him every week and you're you're putting him in these long segments and then he's got matches and like you said, you know, you have to be careful with this. Like you have to take this. So he should just be running into people right now and then be like, yo, are, aren't you Elias? And he's like, no, I'm Ezekiel. I'm his brother, you know, something like that. But he should just be running into people. He shouldn't be doing these long segments. And let me get back to Kevin Owens. This dude just main evented WrestleMania with Stone Cold Steve Austin, and he's stuck. He's stuck in a feud with, with Big E, Ezekiel. You know, it's like not the okay, guy. There, not the guy who's just on Price is Right there either. On that, though. There's some <laughs> self awareness on that though. Kevin Owens was just interviewed the other day, and he was like, "Hey, listen." I just wrestled Stone Cold at WrestleMania. Frankly, and I'm saying this optimistically, it's all downhill from here. So if it's a massive precipitous drop into Ezekiel territory, he's good. He just got his main event with uh, Stone Cold, and it's magical. It's a little bummer for the rest of us, but hey, I'm happy for him. (laughs) No, no doubt. I'm happy for him, too. I'm sure he got the bag for it. I'm sure they're probably like, yo, (laughs) we're going to throw you the extra bag to do this thing with Ezekiel for a couple months, you know? But it's like... I mean, God dang. And just give this man something to chew, put his, you know, chew into. I I don't know, man. I feel like he's, we're just wasting away Kevin Owens right now when he could, he could be going after somebody, doing something, becoming the prize fighter again. I don't know. This Ezekiel thing's not working for me. Lowered him to actually wrestling Ezekiel and leaving it for lower mid card guys to have weird non finishes with him instead. That's a comfort. Yeah, because otherwise I would be like, what are we doing with Kevin Owens? But as you mentioned, Jeremy, you did say it's all downhill from here. Here, You know, it was a good run. You can't top what I did at WrestleMania. <laughs> that true. was the pinnacle of my career. And quite frankly, I'm good. I got paid by WWE for X amount of dollars. I am living the good life. So if Stone Cold is my peak, if that is my career highlight, so be it. But we all want more for Kevin Owens because he's so good on the mic, in the ring, highly entertaining as a babyface or a heel. And I would not be opposed to Kevin Owens running it back someday against Roman Reigns, a guy that that was never pinned by Roman Reigns during the Tribal Chiefs reign thus far. He's made him be trapped in a steel cage. He put him handcuffed. Handcuffed. He never got up. Even in the latter match, he was screwed over with a low blow. So he was never physically pinned by Roman Reigns. That's and a great maybe point. one day in the near future, they can go back to that. Because I do believe that Kevin Owens is one of Roman Reigns' greatest opponents during this run for 600 plus days now. It was great. And he would be the one guy I would pop for besides maybe a Drew McIntyre, Gunther, or Cody to win the belt from Roman. Besides, of course, Seth, who was also Roman's other greatest rival thus far in this run. And as we dive into the highs and lows of sports entertainment a bit more, let's dive into a low. Edge's brood crew. So 
I do appreciate the fact they try to explain to me as to why they're so fucking bitter these days. So Damien Priest is jealous of Bad Bunny. Bad Bunny get all the press. He got all the notoriety last year during their tag team match at WrestleMania against Miz and Morrison. And this year, Priest was not on the WrestleMania card and afterthought, so to speak. Last year, Edge was the main event, getting stacked and pinned on top of Daniel Bryan, courtesy of Roman Reigns. This year, he had to practically beg to have a match on the WrestleMania card and AJ stepped up. So he's mad, he's pissy, and he talks about the brood and the corporate ministry from way back when. I'm like, okay, whatever, fine. But do we need the stupid ass lighting to go along with it? I don't care about the lighting and the special effects. Can you just be two guys talking shit with the lights on, dressed up, suited and booted, and do what you need to do in the ring? I don't need the melodramatics or the big ass words from Edge as if he just became acquainted with Miriam Webster. No. So we go backstage. AJ Styles is being interviewed. And the lights go off in the locker room. And somebody had a great tweet saying that that is a reaction of when Cody's pyro goes off backstage. $10,000 going up in smoke just in that locker room area. The lights flickering. And then while the lights are flickering, Edge and Damian Priest beat down AJ Styles with the goddamn lights flickering. So even though we fired Bray Wyatt last year, you keep the Fiend's lighting budget indefinitely. I don't get it. It's too much. It's too extra. It's too much sports entertainment for me. And I simply cannot take it, Jeremy. I cannot take it. You know, there are three things that I don't like about this group. And uh, one of them is vampires. The uh, second one is crushed velvet. And the third one is blaming the fans. All three of those things are things that I do not like and make me actively disappointed in a stable because they are the aesthetic that does nothing for me. It is a bit of a bummer because I really want this group to work. I think the potential that Edge has as the top heel over on Raw is pretty massive. I was, uh, I was talking with Garrett the other day, uh, fearless leader Garrett Gonzalez, about uh, potentially like Cody winning the title at WrestleMania next year and having it be due to Edge winning Money in the Bank and cashing in on a dusty finish at SummerSlam and then holding the title the entire rest of the year. And that's the level of potential that I believe that the stable has in order to maintain dominance on the Raw side and create a, a viable story for Cody to overcome through the year. So I have big, big hopes for this uh, stable to really deliver on potential that right now they're kind of fine tuning and tweaking and they're needing to do a bit more tweaking till they get it where it needs to be. But the bones are there and I am optimistic in the long run, even though inter inter purple lighting the whole idea of slowing everything down and making you creeped out by megalomaniacal edges not quite there yet not at all and i love vampires to a point i love the brood back in 99 but this presentation sucks and i cannot tolerate the lighting and the overproduction of it all and this needs way more workshopping this reminds me of the worst after effects of the fiend and the messiah gimmick that seth rollins had in 2020 these are two things melded together that suck and edge cannot carry it by himself this needs to be edited and workshopped more and more in order for Rhea Ripley to fit into this crew seamlessly. Because right now, I am not feeling this in the least, Scott. 
you know, we're gonna <clears throat> we're gonna talk about one of my my guys later, Randy Orton, and it, it kind of brings up something with Edge. Him and Edge formed the team because they had a common enemy in DX, and they just wanted to get rid of him. And the Edge didn't need to go back to his his brood roots. They didn't start flickering any lights. They just started insulting them, beating them up, and taking their titles. You know, they they did what you do in 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 the wrestling in the wrestling world, which is you go after them and you go after the things that they want, which is you know they wanted to win, they wanted the titles. You take all that. Instead, now, like, wh- why is that such a problem to do that now? Why couldn't we do that with Damian Priest and Edge? Because they're already two kind of darkerish, brooding characters anyway. You don't even need to go over the top, like. I I thought the promo was fine with him on the throne because he's this egotistical maniac. So he, I could believe him having a throne. You know, I, I could see that. I could even see Damien make, telling him to make Damien Priest stand beside him like he's Dwight Schrute and Michael Scott. Like that's that's what it reminded me of, except with a fog machine going off. Like you don't have to do all this stuff to, to make these guys intimidating because they are that. Damien Priest is an intimidating dude just being that. That thick five o'clock going on on his face, that's all he needed to add a little bit of grit to him. And Edge is Edge. We know what he brings to the table. He can cut a promo when he's not just talking to be talking to be filling time. And I think that's what the problem is and what's kind of why the sports entertainment term is is used the way it is nowadays especially is because it it. it referring to this like silliness at the end of the day it's just silliness when you could just have two great wrestlers who are just tired of doing things even if it's for the fans because jeremy you know i i hear what you're saying about that and there is something to that that's just the that's the basic you know that that's Mm -hmm. just being basic but Mm -hmm. if you can if if you can do it in a way where it's like you know we're just we're tired of we're tired of doing things for the fans we're just going to start doing things our way we're going to do them together because we can get more accomplished together that's still a basic premise and it doesn't involve any silliness you can still do it in a serious manner and 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 raise the level because that's that's what I'm assuming this group is supposed to do. And if you want to bring a Rhea Ripley into this, I don't like we don't need Fiend and Alexa Bliss 2.0. Like we don't need the playground 2.0, except the graveyard in Edge's case, it'd be a graveyard or something or the, the dungeon. But we don't need that. You know, we just we just need gr- a, a group of great wrestlers to come together and be like, we're just taking over. That's it. No more games. We're tired of, of, of doing things a certain way. We're doing things our way now, and we're coming together for this cause. That's all it takes. That's all the mission statement has to be. It doesn't have to be this, you know, we talk about in this show, the CW Rivervale universe they're trying to form here. Like, it doesn't have to be that. Just have three great wrestlers. Basic mission statement. We're coming together to take over because we're tired of doing things the way we've been doing it. Scott, there was something that you said about Randy Orton that reminded me that I've been meaning to get off my chest on one of these shows, Uh is that I find it really fascinating that Edge has taken bits of every one of his feuds and incorporated it into his current identity. And it kind of started with Randy Orton and his feud when he returned, because if you remember that feud, it started with Randy needing to stop Edge before he turned into exactly what Randy predicted he would turn into now. So I would be very, very bullish on a Randy Orton Edge feud with a Randy Orton face 
in the near future. And when I see Edge and all of his mannerisms, you'll see Seth Rollins' drip. You'll see the Miz's like overinflated ego. Hmm. You see the brood. You see the Undertaker in all of this. There are things from all of his famous feuds that you see. And he has turned that, he has taken those things and turned himself into his ultimate version of Edge. And I, I, for long-term booking, I have to give them credit because that that takes a lot of work to cultivate that. The fine-tuning coming from that, it'll get there. And I and for that, I'm totally optimistic. But I've been meaning to talk about how really impressive that they were able to take that long-running thread and reincorporate it and basically just say, oh, look, Randy was right. Yes, and he was. I mentioned that too recently that he tried to tell us. I tried to put him down to protect him from his own good. I tried to oh, yell at him, but y'all didn't want me to do it. So that was brilliant, actually, Jeremy. It's all true. And you look at him being very drippy, drippy like Seth Rollins, but just ditch all of the supernatural crap. And as Scott mentioned, just be badasses. Don't be Percival Pickens from Rivervale. Just be above that edge. Be more than what you're trying to be at this point, which is just a vampire with a lot of big words and superpowers that I don't buy into in 2022. Don't use the undertaker's powers. Only the undertaker has those powers, which we'll get to when we get to 2.0 eventually, but we got a double wedding to discuss a double wedding involving Akira Tozawa and Tamina alongside Reginald and Dana Brooks. I'm sorry, Brooke. Because, you know, our truth had a slip of the tongue during his officiating of these weddings. And let me tell you that if it was not for our truth being the ordained minister for this wedding ceremony or ceremonies, if WWE went in there, let's get an actor to do this. This would have been a top 10 all time worst segment. Thank God our truth was there. He tried to ab lip his way through it. It was not easy because he got wetted down at every turn, but he kept this shit on the rails. And I will say this. People had a fit on social media about Sasha Banks being associated with this segment. I appreciate the storytelling of the fact that Tamina would have Naomi and Sasha Banks as her bridesmaids, as her maids of honor, so to speak. They ride back to their times as Team Bad from 2015. It's great continuity. Cody Luther King is at it again. He's in his bag remembering stuff from years ago to make sure we don't forget things. So therefore, Sasha Banks can have fun for a night. She can let loose. She can be silly. She is not Mother Teresa, y'all. She can be a part of silly segments from time to time. And it made sense. And thankfully, they were out there to save this alongside our truth. Because if anybody else was out there, if there was a random old white dude being a part of this wedding ceremony looking like Bill Belichick, they would have shit it all over this segment, Scott. Man, I I, <laughs> I I actually really enjoyed most of this segment. Like it it started and let me I'm glad you brought up our truth. Anyone who wants to want anyone who wonders how our truth stays employed, why he stays where he is, how he's so happy, this dude is getting the bag. And this segment shows why he's getting a bag. Like he was able to, as best as I think anyone probably could at that in this segment, like tame the crowd to the point where they were able to continue the segment, and and you could hear what was going on. Um, so he did great. 
when they started rolling with everything with the, with the pinfalls and stuff, I'm not gonna lie, I, I I was rolling with the man. I was getting a kick out of all of it. When Tamina laid old boy out with a super kick in her wedding dress, I was done. I was all in. I was completely. I completely bought in at that point. I was like, oh my God, this is so fantastic. And I know it wasn't because when it first started, I was, I was thinking to myself, well, I, I definitely have my skip of the week and I was ready to skip it myself, but I was like, I'm gonna watch it. And yeah, once they got to the pinfalls, man, I, I, I didn't, I did enjoy most of that. Tazawa having to go, took him 30 seconds to get under the dress to get to the roll up. Like that was funny. Um, the re- the reactions of Sasha Banks and Naomi during all of the, the, the mayhem and chaos was fantastic as well. It's not going to be for everybody. And I know I just did a thing about sports entertainment and what it, you know, what the term means nowadays. Well, I don't care. This time the sports entertainment got me. I Once everything got rolling, I thoroughly enjoyed the last part of this segment. Yes, it was saved by the performances, by everybody involved, because it was rough at first. But our truth is a fucking savior for keeping this on track. And I did laugh at Dana Brooke during a crossbody yes. on the top rope in her <laughs> wedding dress. It was incredible. I got my laughs off on this. It was hilarious. And I really enjoyed it. This could have been a disaster. But thankfully, the people involved made this much more tolerable. And Tamina, I got to say, she was great from the tennis shoes rocking in the ring like girl I'm not wearing no heels to this shit like my kind of girl Tamina you go girl you wear those tennis shoes proudly because you knew you had to whoop ass eventually and she kept swapping the grooms and the brides I loved it it was yeah, so yeah that was great funny. too <laughs> and I was pulling actually for Tamina and Dana to get married then WWE copped out like fuck y'all again but in any event I greatly enjoyed the segment Jeremy what are your thoughts on this double wedding from hell You guys touched on most of the things that I liked about it. There's two things that I'm going to go back to. The first is the negative, and it's one of the things that WWE has absolutely no excuse for, and it's getting really tiresome for me personally, and the kind of the eye roll, uh, deep sigh, really, we're doing this again, and that's the emasculation of Asian men on this show, Mm -hmm. and in WWE in particular. I I think we could have done this same angle without Akira Tozawa uh, specifically, but I think the joke was that Akira Tozawa was there. When I think about it like that, it leaves a little bit of a bad taste in my mouth, but I also want to commend everyone who was involved in the skit for committing to it pretty immensely and trying to deliver the best uh, the best segment possible. The other thing I just want to go back to is uh, Sasha Banks and Naomi really did make that segment for me. Them just being in the background, low-key not giving a fuck after their match, just dancing and having a good time. It's like, nah, we're not going to go to the nightclub. Let's go to the wedding instead. And then we'll take off and do, our, do the thing after that. That's how it felt like to me. They were not a care in the world, having fun, just this is, this is how we party with our friends. And it actually felt kind of genuine in a way in, in that we don't kind of see that side of the WWE superstars uh, all that much. 
And I love the group photo of everybody from the wedding party on Twitter that I think Sasha posted. We had everybody in the dresses. <laughs> it was the greatest bridal picture outside of Index from six months ago. I loved it. So in terms of attention to detail, the callbacks, the throwbacks, and the 24-7 nonsense, this was good by WWE standards. And, and as I mentioned, if anybody else other than our truth and maybe Kevin Owens was officiating this, a train wreck of epic proportions definitely yes and now it's time for our main event a different chain a a different train wreck in terms of the finish it was the american nightmare cody rose versus a mystery opponent because seth rollins wanted to pay it back to cody rhodes hey i didn't know you were my opponent of wrestlemania so i'm going to trick you tonight and guess who your opponent is going to be kevin owens and if we did not see Kevin Owens earlier in the show, this would be a nice surprise. But you saw him about two hours earlier and the fans were like, oh, we love Kevin, but this is it. This is a surprise we've been waiting for. I think some fans had their hopes up for Roderick Strong, which is a dream match on 2.0. If Cody ever took a trip down there to check off the list officially. But I thought this was a very good match. Kevin Owens was laying in his shit on Cody. That sent on to Cody's back was everything i felt for cody's back in that moment he needed his back brace back because he took all of that scent on he took some crazy bumps including the fisherman's buster from owens as well for a very close near fall and eventually the action spills to the outside and kevin owens is trying to get back in the ring to beat the 10 count and seth freaking rollins is at ringside overseeing this match and he tells kevin owens and i quote get your fat ass back in the ring and kevin owens looked at him and said motherfucker what excuse me this is not my fight this is your fight i'm out so he walks away and i will say this is a justifiable count out because nobody can call me a fat ass and get away with it so he walked away and cody was not happy about taking the loss or taking the win this way i should say but it's a win via count out and as the show goes off the air seth rollins with 10 seconds to spare is going to push cody off the top rope and onto the floor and cody grabs his ankle and jared king lawless says, oh my god cody's hurt like oh fuck is he hurt for real just a great sell job by Cody Rhodes, a thespian, an actor of our time, and quite frankly, one of the greatest executive producers in my mind that has put together some fine sports entertainment in my imagination for the past couple of weeks on WWE television. But all in all, it was a shitty way to end the show, but in some ways, I can find it forgivable because you don't call someone a fat ass and get away with it, Jeremy. I got a I got a little secret for you guys. Uh, I don't watch the three hour shows totally live on Monday night. I end at about ninety minutes in, and then I go to bed because I get up exceptionally early the next morning, and then I watch the rest of the show the next day. When I hear about what happens at the end of the show and I watch it the next day, I am considerably less angry than if I had gone to bed the night before knowing that I was losing potentially a full night's sleep to watch a finish like that. I don't think anyone in the arena was happy about that finish. I saw Kevin Owens walking away. He was unhappy. I saw Seth Rollins walking away. He was unhappy. I saw Cody in the ring. Also unhappy. Every fan in the arena, also unhappy. For a show that ended uh, and having everybody very, very happy through the show, it was a choice to have a finish in which everybody was wondering, oh man, 
Somebody made the decision to do that to all of us. Oh, a bold maneuver, I have to say. Yes, everybody had different levels of shock on their faces, including the fans who were kind of in and out for the main event to begin with. But it was definitely a choice. I understand it. But to end the night that way was definitely a choice. And quite frankly, it was not a good one, Scott. Yeah, you see situations like that. You don't always have to have this 20 minute main event. You know, and I think these are times where instead of doing a 20 minute main event here, this is where you do like a five minute main event. And, you know, you you the the. I don't think people were expecting a big name to come out. You know, I, 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 I don't see how you can expect them to just drop a big name like that for Cody Rhodes to have in, in, in the main event of Raw. So, you know, it's not going to be somebody crazy, but, you know, it could be somebody interesting or an intriguing matchup or just somebody big. I mean, that's a spot for somebody like a T-Bar, like a Dominic Dijakovic, you know, a bigger guy who you can get a decent match out of from Cody Rhodes. You know the outcome. You know the outcome anyway. Cody still won the match. You know he's going to win the match, but it's about how you get there. You can have a big guy like that. I mean, God dang, storyline-wise, why wouldn't you go to MVP and get Omos in there? You know what I mean? Like, there there are options that you have. So I I, I think this this idea that you have to have this 20 minute banger of a a main event match you you don't have to do that you can get the same story and point across with a much shorter straight to the point type match you know and I, I think Cody Rhodes at this point he needs to show like either you need to make him look like a monster and just have him mow through these like have him mow through Dominic then you know you could do it like that you Seth thinks he's got his number bringing this big guy in and, and Cody's like nah what I can take care of that too or have a couple guys run a little mini gauntlet and then have Seth be the final, or not even have Seth, but have Seth just come in and attack him and build some heat that way. You could have him beat Dominic and then Mace, you know, follow one, one, two, two big guys back to back. Cody runs through him, bang, bang. Like, and then you have a nice beatdown at the end. We, we're getting to the same point. Cody's getting two big wins, two quick dominant fashion wins, and you're not wasting a Cody kevin owens match and you're not leaving people unsatisfied in the arena i just think there's there's so many other options you can do instead of always having to go to the 20 minute banger with a disappointing finish yeah it was a good match but a bad finish there was one other thing I wanted to say that you reminded me, Scott, is like these, uh, these finishes at this point also give me pause because these rosters aren't that deep. And if you're going to keep pulling Cody out there and putting him into matches, they're going to need to start leaning onto some different gimmick matches, putting him into tag matches. If they want him out there every week or have a match every other week, uh, you're going to have to make some serious decisions about just how far you're willing to go to protect him and how you want to present him as the top babyface because you guys were talking about it last week about whether he was the top or the second babyface and maybe at the time Bobby Lashley was the top babyface but it's pretty damn clear the way he had the Buffalo fans eating out of his pocket uh, just how much of a top babyface Cody is for the Raw brand right now Absolutely. He is the top face. He's on the banners for NBC commercials buffering the USFL on Sundays. So he is obviously the go-to guy, the go-to baby face on Monday nights. And he should be booked accordingly with his 
cannot stuff I was not a fan of this week. I understand. And when you call me a fat ass, I might walk too, but not in the main event. And you bust your asses for 20 minutes. It was definitely a bad booking decision by WWE to wrap up a pretty decent show. That was, uh, uh, it was fine. Crowd was kind of there, but all in all, a decent show nonetheless. And I do want to mention one more thing in the fact that Austin Theory, or shall I say Theory now, can't call him by his first government name. He is the new United States champion after he defeated Finn Balor this past Monday on Raw. And my timeline was incredibly mixed about this. Oh, Finn was booked like shit. And how could Theory win? I'm of two mindsets. Finn Balor's run as champion sucked. No doubt about that. Because I do presume that it would have been the Demon versus the Damien of WrestleMania. But of course, Edge has his brood crew on the horizon and Damien was going to turn heel and be a part of that faction. On the other hand, WWE is trying to push younger stars and theory definitely fits that bill. I will say the match was good, but the crowd heat was very lacking. And that is a concern for me when you push a guy that you think is ready. That gives me every vibe of Drew McIntyre from 2009, the chosen one, the anointed one, the guy that pulled a good rating over the Cleopatra egg. He is now going to be the golden goose for Vince McMahon, the next John Cena. I honestly, Honestly, do not know. I like Austin Theory a lot. He's really talented, but I hate to say it. When he was NXT, he was better off being an idiot, a lovable dumbass. He was a great character with this selfie stuff. Not so much being a dumbass. He was definitely in his pocket in that regard. And if he's able to kind of work the character out on Monday Night Raw and forge a connection with the fans, either whether he's a heel or a babyface, there is hope there. But you do have to try to push new stars. And Theory does fit the category, but he does need to get an organic connection with the crowd to love him and or hate him for the right reasons. And I'm going to let Jeremy take point on this regarding who is now on top of the mid-card scene on Monday Night Raw, who happens to be Theory from the A. Let me tell you something. I looked up stuff regarding this match. Did you know that Finn Bauer is 40 years old? 40 years old, and he's carrying that title, and he just dropped it to a man nearly half of his age. I actually looked during this match. Austin Theory is the top of the mid card. But if you're watching this match and you look in the background and you pay attention, all you see is the title match and then the Make-A-Wish logo uh, in the background if you're watching the screen. And I couldn't help but think that it felt like Finn Bauer was granting a Make-A-Wish to Austin Theory to win this title. Oh, wow. And then when they got the heel group out there of these eight people... It was like Vince is sitting in gorilla position. Like, ah, oh, shit! Look at these guys. I gotta go out there and give them the rub. You know, he's out there like, I. Oh, we got Aziz. Aziz has got him on his shoulders. Aziz and 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 Mace or T Bar, T Bar and Aziz. I gotta go out there. So, I I'm glad Finn Balor lost this match because the title was beneath him, the reign was beneath him, and the company treats Finn Bauer like he's beneath them. And that's a misappropriation of priorities. I hope that uh, they are reminded of the star power that Finn Bauer had in NXT and, you know, kind of what Natalia has right now, the the different world aspect of that over there. But Finn Bauer is too good to be uh, doing matches like this and being used like this. Austin Theory has all the potential in the world, but put him... Put him in matches with people that are more his speed and telling stories that are more appropriate to the field that he should be having. 
Absolutely. And Finn Balor, 40 years old, looks like he's 20 in the prime of his career. And we know the NXT Finn hits different than main roster Finn Balor. And they have the tapes. They have the footage on Peacock to see how great he is. And they don't push him accordingly on the main roster. Do I dare say go back to New Japan? Do I dare say be a part of some super show in the next six months? I don't know. That's Finn's decision. But he has so much value in the prime of his career that's not being tapped into on Monday Night Raw. I don't know what the fallback plan is. But when you lose to Matt Capadamos the night before WrestleMania in the Dre Battle Royale and you lose the same night to Austin Theory before he lost his last, before he lost his first name and then you lose this way this past Monday. I don't know what to say, but Vince definitely loves Theory. He came out there, gave him the rub, and all I thought about was Drew McIntyre from many years ago and it did not work well the first go around. It worked well four years ago, but we'll see how it shakes out for Theory as the new United States champion, Scott. Yeah, and uh, you know, you talk about do you know Finn Balor potentially going back to New Japan? You don't have to worry about that. WWE is about to bring in the the brand New Japan Group, which is going to consist of Finn Balor, AJ Styles, and a returning Asuka as they feud with Edge, Damian Priest, and Rhea Ripley. Mm. That's going to be a feud. The brand new. Uh, New Japan. But I, I, I genuinely do think I could see Finn moving over to AJ and that kind of being the tag team. Asuka would be a great baby face for heel Rhea to go after. I genuinely think you could do something with those three in a group. There's history right there. I mean, genuine history right there that you could pull from. So I... And I, I am all for Austin Theory. Like, I, I am blown away every time I see him. And I think he's fantastic in the ring. Like, the things he can do in the ring and he's not a small guy like he's not a small guy and he can do anything in the ring he's he's fantastic so i think when he becomes a baby face i really think that's when he's going to pick up a lot of momentum his move set is a baby face his mannerisms you can tell he wants to play to the crowd like he wants to get them riled up he wants to get them fired up instead of riled up i used the wrong word there and and that's that's why i think when he becomes a babyface that's when i really see the momentum starting to build when he starts being like i'm sick of vince mcmahon i'm sick of him always doing this i'm ready to break when that happens and he starts going against the grain that's when I really think that momentum is going to pick up. I, I think by the end of this year, he's going to be teetering around that main event. And by SummerSlam, you could see him facing off against a a an opponent of Vince McMahon's choosing as he is the the son that the prodigal son that got away might even be a returning Shane McMahon if they you know you know Shane's only gonna be gone for so long so you know <laughs> he's coming back at some point but I, I'm very high on Austin Theory I think like you both mentioned the potential I I don't know if he's John Cena potential but he's 100% world champion potential I do see it and your idea of Finn AJ and Oscar. Holy shit. Edge, here's my tip, son. Stop fucking with those lights and tell Vince this is what we need to do for the summer. That's a great idea. And Scott, you earned your imaginary creative check for that alone this week, sir. I'm just trying to, I just want a job. Like, I I just, you know what I'm saying? I'm just trying to get a little pay, little side pay from, you know, from the creative. You know, I came up with Damien versus Priest. They didn't want that idea. I had a great fatal four-way for WrestleMania all lined up. They didn't want to use that. So hopefully they at least take this idea. But look what you did last week, though, with that fucking light and the, the, the two Damians popping out of each other. You caused this. <laughs> so by default, they somewhat listened to you and 
That makes me angry. But you redeemed yourself this week with that Bullet Club adjacent idea of the Balor Club and Brood Crew 2.0. I love it. Let's hope they go in that direction this summer. And Asuka and Rhea Ripley letting loose fully. That would be great to see as a buffer to get to Bianca Belair eventually. And now it's time to discuss our favorite show, NXT 2.0. Used to be... <sighs> used to be my jam used to be our jam used to be a show that we were very happy to talk about these days and now i'm almost done with it i'm going to divorce this show very soon if things happen a certain way at spring break-in but i want to talk about a very important release from wwe Kashida decided to leave wwe when his nxt contract expired and nxt will not disclose any contracts expiring or not being renewed publicly and this was not surprising to me. Kushida bet on, bet on himself about three years ago. He was not, he did not want to be a super junior forever. He did not want to be a junior heavyweight forever. He wanted to be a heavyweight. He wanted to step up in his division in terms of weight class. And he went to NXT USA and the pandemic hit and whatever momentum he thought he had was gone. And we had jacket time for it, time with Alex Shelley. And then... Or the task, what as I should say. And then after that, he was aligned with Ikiminjiro for jacket time. And this was the bottom of the barrel in terms of Japanese stereotypes that I hate. And when you are lumped in that category, I can say that it's time for you to go and don't miss the prime years of your career. So NXT 2.0 was simply not it for Kushida. I completely understand why he left. I think the plans are right now for him to go back to New Japan, not be a super junior heavyweight, thankfully. He wants to move up a weight class, be taken a bit more seriously, maybe go down the Zack Zaber Jr. route, which I'm all for, by the way, to be a guy that can compete at a high level and do his thing and be a difference maker because Kushida has a lot to offer still. But within the framework of WWE, it was simple. Simply not going to work long term. And I thought that NXT squandered some of the prime years of Kushida's career since 2019. So what are your thoughts, Jeremy, on Kushida leaving WWE and just saying, you know what, NXT 2.0 wasn't for me after all. <laughs> I touched on it a little bit earlier with the Akira Tagawa emasculation. Uh, WWE... Uh, has absolutely zero defense to the criticism that they do not know how to book Asian men correctly on their shows. All the way up to Shinsuke Nakamura, there has just been mistakes and misunderstandings on what the audience and their uh, presentation, there's just a disconnect. And I don't know how they fix that. Uh, sometimes when you bet on yourself and like Kushida, you're going to lose. And he, there, there's no way that you can spin this other than he and his family enjoyed their time in the States personally. And for that, there's a silver lining. Other than that, it I remember him having a shot in a North American title ladder match a couple years ago, but I can't think of any spectacular opportunities that Kushida had. And this guy was tearing it up in the in the junior heavyweight division in New Japan. And you touched on it. He's going to have a bit of an MMA-style career-booked uh, wrestler in the heavyweight division, but he, he's going to be starting from the bottom. And he's gotten lapped by a lot of people who 
have been there and have been working really, really hard. And and traditionally, if he had gone, if he had stayed there, he'd probably be at the same level as a guy like Will Ospreay, uh, Hiromu Takahashi. But he's not going to be at that point. He's not going to be at that stature. And is he capable of getting to that point and grinding and working hard? Or is he going to have a different approach to it? It remains to be seen. I am... I'm entirely optimistic that Kushida will be motivated to prove himself in a way that he hasn't had the opportunity in the last three years. But exactly where he's going to uh, where he's going to be in the standings, as it will, when the dust settles is I couldn't tell you. That is true. And I do sense he's going to be able to figure it out for himself in due time. It is going to be tough. Going back to New Japan is completely different from what it was three years ago. But I do sense in maybe 10 years he's going to be where Minoru Suzuki is today. The badass gatekeeper that is there to beat your ass, maul you, destroy you. That might be his spot in 10 years time, but he still is in the prime of his career, a long way to go in terms of being a true difference maker. And it might be the right place, right time again, as they try to get back to where they were in terms of crowd reactions and crowds and just great shows all around in terms of energy, which has been lacking as of late. So Scott, what are your thoughts on Kushida's departure from WWE and possibly heading back to New Japan Pro Wrestling? So I didn't know much about Kushida before he came to WWE. Um, and some of what I did know about him was actually from J.D. Oliva, you know, host of the Brace for Impact podcast. He uh, when he and I did a sh- when he and I did a show together, uh, we used to recap matches. And one of the matches that he wanted me to watch was him versus uh, Hiromu. Uh, Takahashi from Wrestle Kingdom and it was you know the anticipation of the match was supposed to be like this 20-30 minute classic match and instead it was like a a six like a five minute just hard hitting real quick match and it was like five ten minutes before the match even started they were just banging each other outside the ring Um, that was the first impression I had him so when he's coming here I'm expecting him to bring that same hard hitting you know, bend them, break them, you know, pretty much snap them type mentality back over here. And, you know, he, you, you got it a little bit, but even when he was getting the momentum, like, like you both have mentioned, it wasn't anything really sustainable. They weren't giving him big wins. It wasn't, you know, they, you could tell that he wasn't being primed as a, a top, top guy. So I, I don't, I don't I don't know if I'm the right you know my impression of him is going to be very different from somebody who has seen him and who has really had the opportunity to appreciate him in a setting where he gets to show off what he does you know some of the the good matches I've probably seen are nothing I'm sure compared to what he's been able to do in New Japan so um, he's somebody that I will have to now that I know I won't get to see him anymore in WWE, we'll have to go out of my way to to check out because all I've heard is nothing but great things about him as far as his work rate and whatnot. And he doesn't put on bad matches. And I actually kind of enjoyed his his team with uh with um with, uh, what's his name? Yeah, I, I actually liked that team. Jacket time was cool to me. I, I thought there was they could have been a nice fun babyface team for that 2.0 brand, but um, it wasn't meant to be. 
No. And for anyone that wants to see the greatness of Kushida, there's one match from NXT Vengeance Day, February 2021, involving himself and Johnny Gagano for the North American Championship. That is the closest you're going to get to New Japan Kushida. That was an outstanding match. And the one night he should have been the North American champion, but he lost. And that was pretty much the beginning of the end, despite him winning the Cruiserweight Championship from Santos Escobar during the first night of NXT being on USA on a Tuesday night. But otherwise... It was a wasted one, and it was just something that deserved a bit more attention from NXT prior to the switch over to 2.0. And speaking of 2.0, I have a progress report on one Tiffany Stratton, who I read on this show a few months ago. I was not digging the daddy's girl. I did not like her outfits very much. I thought she was very mechanical on the mic and in the ring. But I will say that she has gotten much better over the last few months working with Saray. And I don't like Saray's chances either. She hopped through the portal a bit too late, dressed when NXT was transitioning to 2.0. And she lost once again to Tiffany Stratton, even after the transformation this past Tuesday. It was a solid match. I think the best part about it was when they started to slap the shit out of each other. Oh, they're striking. They're being loose. They're not thinking about the structure of this match and going spot for spot it for organic and I like Tiffany's potential she's toned down the things I did not like initially about her character and I had some ears regarding a clip I said about her on this show via my own podcast as well and those ears might have reached down to Orlando Florida and perhaps they told young Tiffany Stratton maybe you need to really rein some stuff in in terms of the daddy's girl stuff and so far it's been much better I do like her potential she has a ways to go but she has improved in my eyes to be possibly potentially a future pillar of the NXT women's division so Scott what are your thoughts on Tiffany Stratton's progress on NXT 2.0 thus far I think she's made great progress. Um, I would argue she might have, she's might has made the most progress out of any women's wrestler on the brand so far. Maybe. Um, I, I think I thought the match was good. I really enjoy her finisher. I think she's got a really good look. This is, this is what 2.0 is, is, is the one thing that it is getting right is we are seeing the younger talent you know, get better. We're seeing it in front of our eyes and we're seeing kind of the cream of the crop rise to the top. Like it's, you're easily pointing out, okay, we're going to see them on the main roster. She's going to be on the main roster. They're going to be on the main roster. And, you know, that was essentially what NXT was supposed to be. So in that regard, man, I, I 2.0 is working. Like we, we wouldn't, Tiffany wouldn't be on the NXT. You know, she wouldn't, she wouldn't have gotten no time on the regular show, at least not yet. But now she's getting TV time. She's getting to have these matches. Man, that drop kick from Saray when, when the old girl is sitting down, that is, that is a brutal drop kick she took right on her chin. I, I love that drop kick. Um, Tiffany's finisher is, is unique. I like that. The, the little spinning uh, splash that she has going on. So, yeah, I, I definitely think that she has improved a ton. I think there's a lot of potential there. A pillar. Whew. I, I can't really say you're wrong. I mean, you you have you need to have somebody from the women's division there. Um, it's definitely not Mandy Rose. You know, Io Shirai. You would think she'd be a pillar, but they don't treat her as a pillar. So, 
you know, and I, I'm not quite as high on Cora Jade as I think some other, you know, as other people. Roxy might be able to take a spot there. But yeah, Tiffany. Oh, actually, you know what? Never mind. She can't be no pillar. Not with Nikita Lyons. <laughs> or, hey, Tiffany certainly can't be no pillar with Nikita Lyons around. Uh, no, nah, not not yet. But no, Tiffany's Tiffany's been fantastic. Though. I, I think she's done a great job of improving. I, I look forward to seeing her uh, more in the ring. Yes, let it be known that Akita Lyons is the main, main pillar of that no division moving forward. So, Jeremy, what are your thoughts on the progress of Tiffany Stratton on 2.0 thus far? Could she be a pillar of this division in the not-too-distant future? Uh, no, I don't think she's going to be a pillar of this division, and I'll tell you why. I think in a year's time, she'll already have been up on the main roster. She's she's not going to be on this NXT for all that long. She's got the look. She's got everything that they love, and they're going to call her up way too early. She's going to be a Carmelo-level talent on the roster. They won't care. They will be happy with it. We will probably be happy with it, because as long as she still makes some level of improvement, which, to her credit, she is constantly improving, both in and outside of the ring, and they're tweaking her gimmick to a point where it is a lot more palatable and heelish rather than obnoxiously annoying and heelish, which gives me comfort. But if either one of you wanted to bet me a a crisp $1 bill that in a year's time, Tiffany Stratton is not on the main roster, I would take you up on that because she will most definitely be up there by then. Do you think she'll be drafted in October? Let's push it up even further. Sure. Why not? All right. Mm. Mm, We will come back to this in October 2022 for the WWE draft to see if Tiffany has moved on up. They're giving her wins. They're doing more with her than they are with a lot of the other uh, NXT talents. You know, you got... I don't see Dakota Kai going up before her. I don't Mm. see Wendy Chu. I don't, you know, toxic traction, maybe. But... If they're looking to fast track women to go going up there, she's got a path a lot quicker than a lot of other women on that roster. Indeed, she does. And we know one of the criteria is being a blonde because Vince loves his blondes from time to time. He likes to typecast them, put them up there, push them to the moon when need be. And Tiffany definitely fits the bill. But I think there's more layers to her than just being a daddy's girl. She's got potential if WWE lets her showcase that on a more regular basis. And now it's time to talk about the thing I really don't want to talk about on this show. But it is our responsibilities to inform the listeners of supernatural events occurring due to bootleg fake ass cult leaders like Joe Gacy who terrorized Braun Breaker our NXT champion throughout this show somehow some way Joe Gacy hacked the production truck and produced a thousand faces of Joe Gacy which still haunts me to this very day he tells Braun Breaker to go find him to get back his father's WWE Hall of Fame ring that he burn in the bonfire then put on his finger last week because he's a fucking warlock for some reason so Braun runs backstage he goes to the cage where his father was at a couple of weeks ago and here's an iPad of the kidnapping in progress NXT has a sex dungeon apparently where they have all kinds of shit backstage they have a house of mirrors and Braun Breaker can see Joe Gacy through the reflection or so he thought because Joe Gacy disappeared and then Joe Gacy at the very end of the show after Pretty Deadly retained their NXT tag team titles against the unlikely tag team of Duke Hudson and Dexter Loomis. Braun Breaker comes out through the crowd 
And then after that, we know that the show is not pre-taped. This happened earlier in the day. The arena is in complete darkness. And Joe Gacy calmly tells Bondbreaker, I will give you back your father's Hall of Fame ring if you simply give me a match for the NXT Championship at spring breaking. And Breaker agrees. And then Gacy gently puts the ring in the vest pocket of Braun Breaker. And then he tells young Braun to take a leap of faith. And he shoves Braun off the very tall platform in a jump cut. We hear a bump, we hear a crash, and Braun is lying on the floor. And apparently, the Undertaker's druids are out of work these days. Undertaker's retired, (laughs) can't do the work they used to do. So Joe Gacy has leased them out. He's hired them to eat Braun Breaker to end 2.0. Yes, Braun Breaker was allegedly eaten by a flock of druids as if we were watching Silence of the Lambs. And Joe Gacy is Hannibal Lecter. And all I thought to myself is what the fuck has happened to 2.0? Shawn Michaels, what are you doing, sir? Is Bruce Pritchett pulling your strings now? What is this 1993 piece of shit Mm. creative? What is going on? Braun Breaker, the future pillar, not only of this brand, but of WWE as a whole. A future WrestleMania main eventer. Scott Steiner took the check for his nephew's future success in this company. And you bog him down with this? Where is Chucky? Chucky would never allow this to happen. Where's Chucky? <laughs> Where is Chucky? He would not stand for this. And better yet, he would say this show would end promptly at 10 because I got to get my shit in. But in any event, Scott, what are your thoughts on this absolutely trash ending to NXT 2.0? Y'all thought them zombies that ate the Miz were gone? Uh-uh. <laughs> they back and they hungry. They hungry. And Joe Gacy was like, man, I got a meal for y'all. Let me tell you, it's like, think like think like the Lion King, you know, when Scar is, is, is like, you know, I got a meal for you hyenas and he's trying to get Simba and Nala over there. That, that's essentially what he did with Braun Breaker and the Droods or, or the zombies. Um, this is... This is that, that that sports entertainment term again that I mentioned, where they you know it's a it's got that negative connotation to it. This is that nonsense that I'm talking about. This is the silliness. This is stupid. Um, the you have Braun Breaker who everyone universally praises the one thing that wwe has that everyone like generally universally praises as something that they. I can't miss project or or prospect. I can't miss a person who, you you know, you can't mess up. But I'm going to tell you what, every single week, they seem to inch closer and closer to messing this man up. And it's like, how do you do that? Well, you you do it by having Joe Gacy push him off a two foot uh, platform and fall down. And then when we come back. I I don't know, man, this this is some of the war. This is to me. This is way worse than The Miz getting eaten on on television. Not only because it involves Braun Breaker and your champion, but they didn't get paid a million dollars to do that. That was their own stupidity who decided that this was a good idea. Michael Hickenbottom did this. (laughs) This was his call. 
using Sean's government name, Michael <laughs> Hickenbottom, executive producer of this segment. And there was not a Netflix check to be found. Dave Batista was not here to promote this shit. This was they awful. Get no bag. They get, they no, get bag no bag. They get no bag. Nothing. No Chucky. Nothing. Nothing. Chucky was not responsible for this. This would have been a better crossover if Chucky was chasing after Braun with a butcher knife. That would have been a better ending than what we got with druids that are apparently off the clock now for Taker, but now work full time for Joe Gacy. So, Jeremy, what are your thoughts on this absolutely ridiculous ending to NXT 2.0, a show we once held in high regard as getting their shit together? And now it's just shit. You know, it's been a rough week for Shawn Michaels. He lost multiple, multiple online polls comparing him to Brett and losing very, very badly. And I'm not entirely un- uncertain that the way that this show was uh, booked had anything to do with that. He booked the entire main event scene to be full of a bunch of dorks. Just dorks. Uh, I, I'm looking at Joe Gacy and a little bit of peek behind the curtain. I wrote in his name wrong when I was Googling some stuff about him. I got John Gacy. They named him after a serial killer. <laughs> That's clown. cool. Clown. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> nice. Let's move on. Uh, <laughs> the other thing that I'm looking at is like, oh, cool. Broad Breaker. All you have to do is push him off a ledge. So are you going to have this match in the bag? If you get Braun Breaker outside the ring rope, can you push him off? Is he going to be unable to continue the match and you're going to be the new champion? Joe, that's a smart move. Good for you. Uh, in, in all honesty, I just... They're, they're building up Braun by giving him these mid-level talents and the mid-level talents just aren't good gimmicks. Joe Gacy doesn't work. Harlan doesn't work. As much as they want it to work, it doesn't. And it is a very, very clear sign that Shawn Michaels is leaning back on his history of his matches to come up with these moments in NXT. This is straight out of Undertaker era 90s stuff. If you looked at that match with Pretty Deadly and Duke and uh, what's his face, the, the, the real the real serial killer of the brand. Uh, Loomis. Mr. Loomis, thank you. Got me back for the Ickerman. Uh, <laughs> he did. They did a move where Pretty Deadly, like did the tag run and then... Uh, the arms around the the women and then the trick. That was a gag that Shawn Michaels did when he was in DX against Morrison and he put his arm around Molina 15 years ago. So he's drawing on his old experiences. In some cases, it works. They're great, but he's got to come up with ideas and imaginations that are more than just what his personal experiences are. Exactly. And I have to pull a Ricky Starks right now and go in my Nickelodeon bag because I want to quote somebody from Hey Arnold, Gerald, as Triple H, as he watches what's now NXT. Mm, mm, mm. Just just look at it. This is a sad state of affairs. 
and this gimmick sucks. I hate Joe Gacy as a character, a bootleg cult leader with zero charisma or sex appeal. You don't know what a cult leader is, WWE. This isn't it. Kevin Owens' light isn't it. And what a bad ending to a show that was so good two months ago. And what the fuck has happened? It's fallen off a cliff and it can't get up. And my prediction of the show being better by June is failing faster than Shawn Michaels being Booker of the Year for NXT 2.0. It ain't happening. He was in the running maybe a, a month or two in this year, but now it's a wrap. And now it is time to dive into Friday Night Smackdown on Fox going down live from Albany, New York. And let me keep this very brief. I don't care about Ronda Rousey anymore. Charlotte Flair is carrying this feud heading into WrestleMania Backlash in an I Quit match for the SmackDown Women's Championship. She's trying, but she's barely holding on. And the only person I care about is one Drew Gulak and his PowerPoint presentations and his part-time gig as an interviewer backstage, getting his ass beat two weeks in a row by Charlotte Flair and Ronda Rousey. He is the only highlight to these segments. Ronda Rousey with this dry delivery. I'm going to make you you say I quit because I'm Ronda Rousey and I beat you at WrestleMania, but the referee didn't see it. Like, girl, go home. Just go home. I, I, I can't take it anymore. And I go back to what Jim Valley said last week on Observer Live and that Ronda is still salty about the fans turning on her three years ago. Get over it. It happens to the best of superstars. Fans are fickle. They will turn on you on a whim. Move on. You want to be a heel? Act like one when it's time for it. You're a baby face right now. Act like you want to be there. But apparently you don't want to be there. You're there for the check. And I don't care. And I used to be a diehard Ronda Rousey supporter. But I do not care about this feud. The match might be all right at WrestleMania Backlash. But when you're wrestling and fighting in slow motion over a kendo stick... I'm done. I have tapped out. I am over this feud. I quit on this feud. <laughs> what are your thoughts, Jeremy, on this? Charlotte and Rhonda together are a charisma vacuum. They suck all the energy and life out of the room. I did not enjoy their WrestleMania match. I did not enjoy the WrestleMania feud leading up to it. I was especially disappointed watching the WrestleMania match and realizing they were going to come back to it for another month. And as I'm watching this feud, I've come to the distinct realization that out of all of this, quite frankly, Drew Gulak is fucked. He is totally boned. And here's why. He is currently looking the most uh, popular option out of the group that involves Rhonda and Charlotte. So if he's ending up more popular than Rhonda and Charlotte, that's not going to do. And they're either going to bury him or get rid of him. On the other hand, if he plays his role perfectly, he's basically been destroyed by two women of pretty top stature at WWE, but the optics that the company was willing to put him in that position also isn't good. So I'm going to maintain Drew Gulak is well and truly screwed within the company. Uh, as for the future of Ron and Charlotte, I don't care, but if I had to guess, it's still going to be Charlotte and they're going to run it back one more time because no. they don't have anything else. No, no, I cannot take hell in a cell next. This cannot be the final chapter. No. Taped, taped tap out. Oh, fuck. 
That's my guess. Damn it. Well, you know, this is just wrecking me right now, knowing that this could go to a trilogy in Chicago and Chicago is going to have a field day with this. So, Scott, do you dare do you dare not hope that this is going to go to a third match? And at this point, I don't want Ronda to win this championship. The promos of her being champion, I can't take it. If she's a challenger doing this, I can imagine what she's going to do as champion, cutting dry, lethargic promos about being not the women's SmackDown champion, just a SmackDown champion, because she thinks that sucks. I don't remember if it was last week or the week before, but uh, I think it's... Uh... I think it's time we bring Malcolm Bivens up and just let that man talk for Ronda Rousey from here on out because she never needs to grab a microphone again. Um, I'm not quite as down on Charlotte as far as uh, the talker as uh, as you know as I think Jeremy might be a little bit as he called her the 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 charisma vacuum when he's when she's no no in no a con- I'm saying them together are gotcha oh gotcha like when gotcha. they are together like it took all the energy out of the room they they do not work well with each other I have no issues with them individually but it is when you put those two together and tell them hey you are working together it is bad it is just bad true that and I and I I actually do have issues with Ronda Rousey, especially with her comeback. Because her promo, I don't think she's cut one good promo since she's been back, and they've all just been lifeless like that. And you, you got to get her a mouthpiece, man. I, I think that's the only thing you can do with her because you can easily rebuild Ronda by just not having her talk. Just she just doesn't need to talk. You don't have to have her coming out giving some diatribe every week. She doesn't have to give her weekly haiku. You know, we don't we don't need the weekly the weekly sessions with Rhonda. You know, you can just have her come out, tap somebody out and just walk to the back. And if you give her a mouthpiece, especially somebody like Malcolm, I'm going to I'm going to stand on that hill, man. I think he would be the perfect mouthpiece because he's he's this little annoying man that you just want to smack when you see his little grin, when he pops his eyes out at you, too. And then you go to smack him and Ronda Rousey steps in front of you, catches your hand, throws you on the ground and snaps your arm. I mean, there's, that's, that's money. And then you have Ivy Nile standing behind her too. The Creed brothers standing behind her. I think the optics of Ronda Rousey being the star attraction in this group with the Creed brothers and I, man, I, I just, I think that and her running, like she could run diamond mine. I, I think there's so much potential there. They don't even acknowledge the Shayna Baszler stuff. Like, I, I, I think you need to put her in a group where she doesn't have to, everything, the whole focus doesn't have to be entirely on her. And I think when we look back at it, that's why the Ronda, Becky, Charlotte feud and the build worked. Is because there was, it wasn't ever just Ronda. It was never just Ronda. It was Ronda and Becky. Rhonda and Charlotte, Rhonda, Charlotte, Becky. It was some combination, you know, and, and Rhonda had always had somebody fresh to be in the ring with. Now that we've seen her in the ring with everybody, it's like, what do you have for me now? And I think that's where a mouthpiece, and again, Diamond Mine specifically, Malcolm Bivens specifically, where that would, I, I think that's the lightning in a bottle that she's missing. That's, I mean, she can play off of them too. When you watch their promos, Ivy Niles is sitting there trying not to laugh at Malcolm Bivens half the time during their promos. You, you can just see it. So 
and I think that's what she needs. She needs just something to play off of and somebody that she can kind of build off of. And I, I think Diamond Mine is that thing. They're obviously not going to do that because why would they do something that would work? But she needs something or someone because she doesn't need to talk anymore. Well, the concern is, will she care even with the diamond mind? Because Paul Heyman is there every Friday as the guy that would workshop her promos. And if he's not able to bring anything out of her, any sense of life, I just don't think she wants to be there. I think that when you get booed one time, like what happened UFC, you lose a couple of times. I'm done. She's checked out emotionally. And if she can't fire up as a heel eventually, then that's it. This is a wrap on the case. The investigation is closed because she's bringing nothing to her promos or her performances in the ring. And if you do level up a diamond mine, she better bring it in the ring. She better bring it in terms of fire and emotion because right now, Everything she's doing is lifeless and is making me very sleepy as a viewer who expects more from her. And Ronda Rousey was it three or four years ago. And now is just a miss on all levels, unfortunately. Do either of you have any concerns whatsoever that Ronda won't make it to Mania next year? She's getting paid too much money not to. I think she's done after Mania next year. Yeah, I believe it. But I- I I, th- I think that this uh this is not going to get better, and it is going to simply become a case of managing Ronda until such a point where their goals are accomplished. I, I will say this though, I-, I do think because she and she's got the power to do this. I do think if things don't get better, because let's keep it one hundred, she seems like the type that's reading what's going on, on the internet, like she's reading the the reception and stuff like that, or at least that's how she comes off to me. So I, I think if this doesn't get better, you know, come Survivor Series time, like before, I I think she could be like, yo, I'm not. Why would I? De- why am I dealing with this? I don't have to do this. I, I can I can go get paid any hundred sort of ways. I don't have to deal with this. I, like unless I'm, that's why I think she has to go heal, man, because it's the only way she she has to embrace this. And if she doesn't, like you both have mentioned, like I don't I don't think she does make it to Mania. I'd be I'd be willing to put Bianca Belair's crisp one dollar bill she gave to Adam Pierce <laughs> on the line and says she doesn't make it to Mania. All right, we will revisit this in due time. I think she will make it, but if the heel turn does not work, if there's not a measurable difference in terms of her performances, she's checked out officially and she might be out around Survivor Series, but we'll see how it goes in the months to come. As we move on to Jey Uso versus Riddle, champion versus champion, tag team champ versus tag team champ. I thought this was the best thing on the show. Great action throughout. Main event, Jey Uso was on full display, giving it to Riddle this past Friday night. We have noted cheerleader and supporter Randy Orton at ringside, just living his best life once again. And he was able to deliver a belly-to-back suplex to Jimmy Uso on the announce table. And that allows Riddle to over Avoid the Uso splash and cradle Jay for the win to go two and O against the bloodline in singles matches. And Randy is ecstatic about this. They celebrate in the ring. But I keep going back to what Jeremy mentioned a few months ago in that Randy is so happy living his best life as a babyface these days to the point that when Bianca Belair appeared for a dark match against Sonya Deville on SmackDown when the show was over, he was twirling his hoodie like Bianca's ponytail. 
That's how happy he is these days. It was precious. I love, love, love this Randy Orton. But I can totally see his heart being broken at some point very soon when they don't unify these titles and or when Riddle stabs him right in his viper heart. You know what? I remember us talking probably before Survivor Series and it might have been a Twitter spaces or something like that. And the crickets in the room when I suggested that it would be Riddle that turned on Orton when all was said and done. And the reaction now to to the reaction back then is pretty night and day. And I feel pretty good about that just for the fact that they've set up a narrative where it's possible. And the whole idea here that I really love is that Randy's having the time of his life. He's teaching Orton all of these things. Uh, they're, they're learning from each other. And to me, this is all leading to riddle, telling Randy that he's learned everything that he can from him. And then he gives him an RKO and then they begin to have the feud that is going to tear down the WWE fandom and just heat up everything after everything's been said and done. Uh, Everything that I've seen from this match, uh, going back to this one match today or yesterday, is the best thing on WWE the entire week, far and away. Uh, the energy that Randy was uh, presenting outside of the ring, uh, Jimmy was playing his part. Jay and Riddle were just tremendous. They were going hard. Uh, this was the kind of match that you wanted Owens and Cody to have, and then you actually got a clean finish out of it. Um, everything about it, I'm loving everything about this feud, and I, I am aptly interested in seeing how it all plays out. Me too. Best thing on WWE TV by far and surrounding the tag team division and the titles, which is even better. So, Scott, what are your thoughts on the matchup and Jeremy's doomsday scenario that I would actually love to see come true? Randy Orton's heart being broken and him and Riddle absolutely tearing it up in a feud that would actually kick a whole lot of ass because the fans would care and so would they. So, uh, you know, when we first started this show and we started talking about the RK bro, uh, you know, feud at the be when we first started, I, I said it then and I, I will, I stick with that now. I, by the time WrestleMania comes next year, uh, Matt Riddle is going to be firmly entrenched into that main event scene as a singles wrestler. Um, and I, you know, I, <laughs> there is something to the story of Riddle. And I, I like the the line, especially of you've taught me everything there is to know, um, especially the and the one thing that I will always remember is to strike first. You know, I, that I could see him definitely saying that before he hits him with an RKO. And I think that's a great line or a thumb down or thumbs down, which would that would play into a lot of history right there. Um, but I still think that the end goal is for Matt Riddle to come out as a top tier baby face. I, I still think. Randy Orton is going to to turn on Riddle. I don't know what the catalyst is going to be because you guys are right. This Randy Orton is a completely different character than he's ever been as far as he's he's thoroughly enjoying things and he's not and it doesn't involve him hurting, destroying or, or punting things. You know, and that's that's a completely different side of Orton that we haven't gotten. As far as the match goes, I've had one issue 
with the presentation of the bloodline and specifically main event Jey Uso, quote unquote main event Jey Uso. The whole point of his feud with Roman Reigns was to elevate him as a singles guy to the main event. Mm. And they did a good job of that, especially I thought they did a great job. And I, I honestly thought he could have ran as an IC champion after his run with Roman, but that wasn't to be. I still think he should be in he shouldn't be losing these. He shouldn't have lost this match. I, I think Jay Uso should have won this match. And I think that should be the story of the bloodline. Jimmy should be taking the losses and you, it should be a big deal to beat Jay Uso in a one-on-one singles match. That should mean something. It should mean more than what it does. So then when Jay does lose, Roman's like, okay, you know, you took out my captain. So maybe I need to be a little bit more serious with you. Now it's, you know, they're, they're, they're more just kind of like pawns instead of being two knights on the board, you know? And I, I think there's, there was something to Jay Uso that they could have kept special if they would just, you know, he shouldn't be losing random tag. Now I'm not saying he should be beating Drew McIntyre. That's completely different, but Matt Riddle's not Drew McIntyre. They're not on that same level right now. And I, I think he should have won this match. And then that helps establish Randy Orton more because then Orton has the match with Jay. That's the guy that beats Jay Uso. You know, that's still, that's something that really could be like, you know, maybe I didn't get it, but my guy Randy will get it. And I'm okay with him beating Jimmy because that works. So that that's a, a minor thing where I just think they should be protecting Jay Uso more. So that way the wins mean more, especially when Jimmy's right there. Like Jimmy can take singles losses and it won't affect anything. Like nothing will be different. But if you protect Jay, I, I just think that adds another layer to the bloodline. So then... Roman Reigns, you know, Roman could be like, well, let's see if you beat Jay. And then you can have a story of, well, nobody can get by Jay Uso. They can't get a title match. You can't get by Jay Uso. You know, so that, again, that's just me on, on the, I think there was a life to the main event, Jay Uso. And this match kind of made me think, man, that's just a missed opportunity. Yes, because Jimmy would be the guy to eat the falls and Roman would always call him out for it. And that would add tension there as well as Jimmy, who was the last member of the family to get gaslit to fall in line in order to get on Jay's good side once again. And Jay is the main event guy that could dethrone Roman in a perfect world. They won't go there, but the story does tell itself and you do want to protect Jay as the main event guy that Roman would say, you're going to represent me. You're going to represent the family because you are my right hand. You are my right hand guy. You are the main guy I look to for protection and support besides wise man, of course. So I think it was a missed opportunity in terms of booking as well, but still the match was great. The energy was everything and Riddle and Jay served in the ring and Riddle is great and I'm just fearful of what's going to come down the line but at the same time I'm optimistic because I know that Orton and Riddle are going to kill it regardless you know I got to give them a little bit of credit though uh, after the match when they were in the uh, the locker room you could you could see Roman giving the stink eye to Jay and he was definitely giving it to him a little bit more than he was Jimmy like I expected more of you your brother, exactly. Exactly. Your, your brother, like, fine, whatever. But you, really? Come on. Come <laughs> and, on. And, and, that, and that's the story. Like, And that's a good story to tell because Absolutely. it builds off of everything they've done from the very beginning. So like, you, I'm glad you pointed that out because that's a great little detail right there that they, that they tell. Because like you said, he should expect more from quote unquote main event Jay Uso. Yeah. I, I love that. Great call. I do, I do like the idea that when the bloodline starts to crumble, that maybe that's a match they go back to. Mm-hmm. 
Because it was great. It, yeah. And speaking of the bloodline, we got snitch ass Sammy Zayn in the streets <laughs> backstage. <laughs> Sammy the snitch. You're eavesdropping backstage. Oh, RK bro and Drew McIntyre's forming a little alliance. Let me go backstage and tell Roman all about it saying, and he called himself the locker room leader because, hey, Roman, that's above you. I got this on lockdown. So I just want to let you know what they're saying about you. And Roman basically told Jimmy and Jay, go out there and make sure they keep my name out their mouth. So Sammy the snitch was in full effect. And for the third week in a row, he runs away from a match like a bitch, a lumberjack match, no less. Like, Sammy, you ain't shit. You can't even survive a lumberjack match bitch like wwe stop just stop but you know if it was not for Sami Zayn and maybe kevin owens being in a similar position i would not forgive this as much but sammy is great but at some point i need drew to beat his ass definitively so we can move on but it was all about drew hitting the flip dive onto everybody on the outside and destroying shanky and scott's favorite wrestler jinder mahal to wrap up smackdown on a high note so scott what are your quick thoughts on sammy the snitch snitching on behalf of the bloodline. My first thought is don't hinder gender. Let's just throw that out there and get that out the way first off. Okay, we won't be taking any gender slander. People probably listen to this show like, yo, this dude sucks. He likes The Miz. He likes Gender Mahal. He likes boring Randy Orton. Who is this guy? All right. Um, no, it, it, and, and Sammy, let me say this also about snitches. You know the old saying that the kids say, snitches get stitches. Snitches also get paid. So, I, you know, Sammy Zane probably got a bag for that that they didn't show you. Paul Heyman was like, hey. Thank you. We appreciate you. Uh, that's what they didn't show you on the air. Uh, it was definitely all about the big dive for Drew McIntyre uh, to set up the match next week. You know, you look at Sami Zayn and Kevin Owens and the the past they've taken after WrestleMania. Uh, Kevin Owens has gotten to interact with the uber charismatic and incredibly over Ezekiel uh, as he tries to figure out where his beard went. And Sami Zayn gets to interact with the tribal chief and is is wrestling the number one babyface on the brand. Uh, just, you know, complete opposites of the coin right there when it comes to those two and what they've done since WrestleMania. I actually really like what they're doing with Drew McIntyre and this entire thing. This gives Drew McIntyre something to do. He doesn't have to take a loss at any point in time. He continues to look dominant. And as this guy who's just above everybody else, he just can't get his hands and get that pinfall on him. And if they continue this kind of relationship or partnership he has with RK Bro, it's an easy segue into him defending the title against Roman Reigns when they go over to the UK, uh, which I would I would assume you have to have Roman versus Drew McIntyre. I, I don't I don't think they would you I don't think you can not do that match over there. So this this seems like that's kind of where the seeds are being planted to get back to that match for the title. Uh, so I, I like all of that as far as um, that. And next week I fully expect him to have a dominant victory over Sami Zayn. And uh, the question is, does he throw Sammy off the top of the cage uh, to the floor and Sammy gets a fluke win? Or does he throw him back in the ring off the table into something? Because somebody's getting thrown off the cage. If Sammy was willing to take getting a a giant-sized mousetrap put on him, I'm sure he's going to go through. He's falling off the cage at some point. For sure. He'll take the bump because that's what he does. He'll go insane like a jackass per the usual so jeremy what are your thoughts on sammy the snitch running his mouth and running away from a lumberjack match to wrap up smackdown 
Everything that Sammy Zane does is in service for the Syrian children. So is it truly bad what he does? Is it? Or is the means to an end totally worth it? Uh, Sammy's doing it. Sammy's doing a great job with the role that he has. He's the shitty coward that you want to see get his ass beat, and he continually runs and runs and runs and runs away. You know, he's the guy that got his ass kicked by, by the jackass crew. So you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Drew's going to mop the floor with him and then mop his blood up with his clothes. That's the level of beatdown that he's going to get. And it's just a matter of time. So, you know, for the pause in the action before we get to the main event scene totally palatable stuff especially knowing that what we got out of the jay and the riddle match earlier and uh, a legitimate hard-working week of angles in wwe so by the time the the week got to the end and we saw sammy run away up the stairs i was at peace with it in the uh in the collective egg basket of wwe presentation the final the final assortment was totally fine by me yes and fam and sammy's hair is fabulous by the way fabulous just looking great as of late groomed beard the hair is on point extra shiny that is the benefits of getting paid by wwe in the millions of dollars yeah do you guys uh have any ideas of who roman might be facing uh at the pay-per-view on may 8th I don't think he's going to have a match. Mm. I I would personally, I would not have him have a match. And I, I said this on, I would have him, I would give, I would actually give a Roman match on SmackDown, have him face like Shinsuke or something like that. The tag titles has to main event, the pay-per-view, I, I think. And you can't have Roman on the card and not main event. So I, I think he's not on the card and you have the tag titles main event and Roman can still be there and still be quote unquote in the main event. Do you think they justify it with calling the opening match, the main event and the closing match, the main event? You could do that too. Um, I, I, yeah, I guess you could do that. I, I just think that's, we don't get a lot of Roman matches on TV. And I think that would be an easy way to get a Roman match, but you're right though. They do. Cause it is, they do quantify the first match. They do it at WrestleMania all the time as the, the main event. So they could easily do that. But I, I just the tag titles really should main event that pay per view. I'm uh I'm supremely worried that they're gonna jump the gun and try and do a Drew Roman match before the UK. That would be so stupid. I hope they don't. I, I'm really just like I feel like it's in the air, but I I did I haven't looked at anything for next week, even though it's already out there. I just like the way that they were working with Sammy and tying in Drew and Sammy with the bloodline, just kind of like, hmm, hmm. I wonder if these wins, I wonder if, you know, I keep thinking maybe it was it's Orton that's going to get that shot against Roman. What, it might just be building up for Riddle to get that shot because he, I think he would get more, he would be a more sympathetic babyface than Orton because I think he would be able to draw more sympathy from the crowd just because of his selling ability too. Yeah, they could definitely do like the tag title match and then something happened in the tag title match and one of the two uh one of the two guys challenged Roman later in the night. Oh, I didn't think about that. That that's a way to go. And then you kinda then you have an you know, Riddle has a, you know, a quote unquote excuse for the law lo- not excuse, but he has a reason. There's uh, a, for there's, the loss. An in, there's an in night narrative to the Yeah, law. exactly. I like that's not bad. 
All right. And now it's time to celebrate the man of the hour, because when this show drops on Monday, it would be 20 years since Randy Orton's first match in WWE. 20 years of the Viper, the legend killer, Randy Orton himself. So I wanted Jeremy and Scott to share some of their favorite Randy Orton moments on this show before I delve into mine as we celebrate the greatness of Randy Orton. Yes, in our space, in this timeline, in this infinite universe, number 12, Randy Orton is the best. So, Scott, what are your favorite memories from the Viper, the legend killer, the dude, Randall Keith Orton? Man, I Randy Orton is my favorite wrestler of all time, bar none. Um, some of my favorite memories, especially, you know, seeing Orton from the beginning from the legend killer from or from joining evolution uh to becoming the legend killer to becoming the youngest world heavyweight champion of all time to being stacy keebler's boyfriend to you know going back to being the villainous randy orton um to floundering randy orton for a bit to to slimming down and becoming the viper randy orton to becoming the crazy randy orton and, and just seeing all these different iterations and one of my favorite moments was it's gonna it may not seem like a big deal, but it, the triple threat match he had against Triple H and John Cena for the WWE Championship when he was the champion. Uh, this was at a time when Randy wasn't firmly and fully established as a main event guy, as a top guy, and you know he was definitely treated levels below. Cena and Triple H. You know, during this build, this is when we got the infamous uh, Randy Orton and John Cena versus the Raw locker room, and they took out like 15 of the 30 guys that were on the apron. You know, we got the the AA into the RKO. I, I kind of do wish that Cena and Orton would have formed a super team at some point. I thought they had good chemistry, but this and that match when Orton won that match, and it was a really good match at WrestleMania. That to me. Uh, kind of showed that, wow, okay, now now they believe in Orton. He got a big win over Triple H and John Cena at WrestleMania, which was a, a huge deal. They ended up running it back at Night of Champions. And it was after that when you saw Orton really kind of establish himself. There were points in time when he was the most over babyface, and the RKO was pretty much equivalent to like Stone Cold Stunner. Like every, that's what people wanted to see. People were chanting RKO throughout the show when he wasn't even on there. I mean, he was hitting RKO. RKO's everywhere, everybody. Uh, the babyface turn that he had when he was the most villainous heel. Making out with, with an unconscious Stephanie McMahon in the middle of the ring as Triple H has to look on after he DDT'd her. I mean, Orton has some fantastic moments, but then he's got some some moments like Shane McMahon in, in the match at No Mercy where Shane McMahon is legit shadow boxing Randy Orton um, <laughs> on the way to the ring. Um, and, and you, you know, you have that, then you have spots and I, and Randy Orton is a guy who, you know, I, I get a lot of flack for the love I give to Orton in our Facebook group. Um, you know, they call him boring, but Randy has some of my favorite spots. Uh, you know, the, the RKO and the moonsault, which is a recent one, but he has my favorite attitude adjustment counter of all time and I think he only did it a couple times once was during a tables match and the other was during their 60 minute Ironman match but it's when 
Cena throws him for that AA and he catches him on the RKO on the way down. It's it's one of the smoothest and beautiful, most beautiful counters. His RKO on RVD back in the day with the first time when he the first spike that he did when he spiked him, uh, when he gave him the concussion, when he first started using the DDT. I mean, this is this is my guy. Like the match with Chris Benoit, I know we're not allowed to talk about him, but that match was a really good match. And it's such a shame that you can't bring that up because that's a crowning achievement and a crowning moment for him that he'll never be able to to, to talk about. So this this guy right here, man, he has been when he retires, I don't know what I'm gonna do. I don't have Shelton no more. I don't have Randy Orton. Like my favorite wrestlers aren't really around like that anymore. So this is my guy, man. So I, I I'm I'm fully expecting him to get laid out on Monday, but I hope I'm hoping that maybe we just get an RKO barrage instead. That would be awesome. So Jeremy, what are your thoughts on the career of Randy Orton and some of your favorite moments along the way? God, it's gonna be incredibly difficult to ever meet anyone and believe them when they tell me that they are the biggest Randy Orton fan that I've ever met, because you clearly are. And so like <laughs> uh, applause to you, man. You own it and you love it. It reminds me of a uh, reminds me of the two guys in office space, the quality uh the quality assurance operators, and they're talking to the guy about Michael Bolton and how they for their money, you know, when he hits that RKO, there's nothing better in the world. You know, what's your favorite one? Like, oh, I love this entire catalog. Huh? Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that that kind of I feel about that kind of feel about you and, and Randy Orton. It's just like you can name off every single thing, and you just you ask somebody else what they like, and you're like. Yeah, that's right. That too. I'm into it. I'm into I'm, it. <laughs> I'm all in. I'm all in. <laughs> I'm all in. Uh, I wrote down. A, I wrote down a a number of things that I've appreciated about Randy Orton's career. Um, the two early on that I actually was not there for, but the other three that I was there for. Uh, you you kind of touched on it, Scott, but the post two thousand four SummerSlam angle with the thumbs down evolution, uh, kicking him out of the group for winning the title, uh, I will remember that pretty much for the rest of my life because it was just really iconic during that bat during that back time, and then one of the other things that really defined me- a mental image of Randy Orton was a match. I don't remember the exact scenario, but there was a match in which he and Shawn Michaels were in the ring and they had Shawn Michaels facing the hard camera and all that you see is Randy Orton behind him rising from the depths of hell and he's coming and all of a sudden he just gives Shawn Michaels this RKO and as long as I live, I will never remember this RK. I will never forget this RKO out of nowhere that he gave Shawn Michaels in which you saw nothing until he rose up and Shawn Michaels like lowered down in the ring. It was uh, I give I give Kevin Dunn a lot of a lot of crap, but that was that was a good shot. That was a good single single camera shot. Well done. So the three matches that I've been to live for Randy Orton. Uh, one was WrestleMania 21 with The Undertaker, where I was convinced he was going to win that match because why Why would The Undertaker win this match? He's on his way down, and, you know, this is the young up-and-comer that clearly has all the potential to be around for a while. Oh, how wrong I was and how wrong everybody was for, you know, 10 more years at least. Uh, it was interesting l- learning about Randy Orton after the fact and realizing that he uh, he made an ass out of himself at that WrestleMania uh, working with Taker and 
he he learned a lot and he became a better man for it. And I have to have a lot of respect for him for for learning that. Uh, then you had WrestleMania 31 in uh, San Jose where he had that amazing match with Seth Rollins where everyone will remember that final move, but the whole match itself was an over-delivery based on where it was on the card. I think it was second on the card. Uh, just a tremendous match. And then the one that I really didn't want to mention... But this is the Hall of Shame entry. It is the House of Horrors match mm-hmm. with Bray Wyatt mm-hmm. yeah, that I that. attended live in San Jose with a non-wrestling fan. And I was more embarrassed by wrestling then than I had ever been in my life. Because you guys have to remember, it was on the West Coast. It was still daylight. And they were airing a match that was happening at night supposedly in the area yes <laughs> yes oh, that's great it was a four o'clock in the afternoon but they had filmed <laughs> it in st louis at night and aired it with no sense of irony whatsoever i felt really bad for randy orton that night i didn't really care how i felt about bray wyatt that night but i am exceptionally happy that randy orton has bounced back without any issue from terrible terrible booking in the past that was an all-time You know, listen, he burned the fucking fiend like three years later. And when you do that and you somehow maintain your dignity as a top tier star, you can never go wrong with me. So Teflon. Yes, that nighttime shit. And it was like four o'clock in the afternoon. They tried it. They did. And I remember that. And I went in on my Facebook page about that very match. I hated it. That was a low light for Randy Orton. And the low lights would continue Dare I say Punjabi prison match regarding Oof. Scott's boys? <laughs> General I didn't. I didn't hate that. I didn't hate it. <laughs> I didn't like it, but I didn't hate it. It was. Terrible. You needed. You needed five stopwatches to clock the amount of time it took for people to climb uh, the bamboo cage. Oh my! It God. was. Be- it was better than Big Show versus the Undertaker in the Punjabi prison. That is it's true. true. Low praise, <laughs> but true. Was that was that the one that they they had to pull Kali because he had the elevated liver enzymes? Yep. Yeah. Oh yep. wow! Good time. <sighs> the memories. Time. I, and I think, and the worst part is that match was probably better than the one we would have got with Kali in it. Probably. Yes. Low bar. Very low bar. But it's not the great Kali. Is it a day. bar? <laughs> oh my God. You know, teep. I do. I do want to say this. I do want to touch on one more thing about Randy Orton. He is for for my money. I you know, and I know that other other people are, you have a, a longer history than I do of watching Survivor Series. But he's the greatest Survivor Series competitor for me because when Survivor Series mattered and actually meant something, when the brands actually were split, he was he was always that go-to guy to, to get three, four eliminations in a row, be the last man standing. He has one of my favorite uh, losses in, in, in the Survivor Series when Kofi Kingston rolled up CM Punk, who who pushed him after the three right into a trouble in paradise and the Randy Orton and pinned them both back to back. Randy Orton is just, Survivor Series is his show. Yo, dude, I am. I know better than to challenge you on the minutia of Randy Orton's success rate at Survivor Series. So I'm going to take your word for it and just double down and say you're probably right. <laughs> oh, he's not undefeated now. No, he, no, he, no. But yeah, he's, he's got a undefeated. strong record. And if yeah. you tell me he has a strong record, you're the guy that knows more about Randy Orton than anyone else. <laughs> <I know. laughs> 
I'm just like, okay, you know what? I'm just going to pack that fact on to the next person I see. Because if Scott Young tells me this about Randy Orton, he doesn't lie about Randy Orton. Oh, snap. Noted Randy Orton historian, Scott Young. And uh, some of my favorite Randy Orton moments. When Randy was going through a shoulder injury in the early 2000s, we had some Randy News Network updates that I greatly appreciated before joining Evolution in 03. And the music, the music video for Evolution featuring the great soundtrack by Motorhead, Line in the Sand, and Randy licking that woman. With t- <laughs> <laughs> the, the way you said Randy licking that woman. <laughs> That tongue was tonguing in ways that (laughs) that was not fit for television at the time. But Randy was in a zone that day. He was committed. That tongue was doing things on that. Are you you telling me his tongue went AWOL from his mouth? (laughs) Yes, it did. That was good. That was was a great line, Jeremy. Great call back to Randy's past. But yeah, that That tongue went AWOL in her neck. And that was an all time classic shot. They aired on Monday Night Raw. Um, I love the multiple television wives that Randy had faking us out. We had a blonde wife, brunette wife, the wife that was screaming in the house when Triple H and the Ninja Fighters came in there to beat his ass in the home invasion angle. That was a lot of fun. Randy burning down Bray Wyatt's shack and posing when the flames were going up. <laughs> the pose got me at the end. <laughs> yeah. An all-time classic SmackDown moment. Let Randy be Randy. Yes, that was peak Randy Or Look at what I've done, arson. And, he and the poses. cameraman just watching. That's an accomplice right there. <laughs> yes. That's an accomplice. Just filming the crime before our eyes. But in all seriousness, though, my favorite Randy Orton besides today's Randy is 2011 Randy Orton. His feud against Christian. Mm. These matches, I'm going to be bold in saying that this is our Tanahashi and Okada before Tanahashi and Okada did it back in 2012, 2013, and 2014 in New Japan. Look back at their matches in the summer of 2011, the psychology, the callbacks, the thought process they put into their matches to tell a story over and over again that was professional wrestling and i just love their chemistry together and i would take 2011 randy orton over this randy orton due to what he was able to do in the ring against christian was it a great feud per se no but the matches were great 2020 randy orton flipping on edge the night after the night after the warrior rumble was fantastic the promo work was the best he's done so far in his career and since then he's been in a zone as a character and the one drawback that we've talked about randy in the past is the fact that he sometimes phones in his performances he, he's so good that he kind of coasts on his greatness and triple h alluded to that john cena talked about it in his own documentary for randy orton about dude coasts a lot he just kind of slides through everything he does in terms of work But when you see him motivated and game, it's beautiful to see. And you see that today via his work with Riddle. He is so happy. He's engaged. He's excited to be to be there at work, putting in that work in the ring. One of the best hot tags in the game today. And he just brings so much enthusiasm in life. The guy did a fucking jump split 10 years ago for Mark Henry, being excited about a finisher. I love that Randy. And I love psychotic Randy. I love Randy from Backlash 04 against McFoley in a standout hardcore match. I love 
all those Randys, but the Randy that I love is the one that is motivated game to really believe how great he is. And sometimes it takes you being a little bit older to realize, shit, I'm really good at this. I really had a great career. And he looks back on it now and he thinks, damn, I really took some things for granted, but I'm not doing that anymore. I'm going to live out my prime life, my prime time of my career to the fullest. And you see that via his work with Riddle on Monday and now Friday night. So this Randy Orton is the best, but 2011 is top tier in terms of being able to weave a story together from match to match against Christian. And that to me is top tier Randy at his best. That SummerSlam match is easy. One of his top five, top three, probably greatest matches that he's ever had. Absolutely. It was so great. And even the television matches after that were oh, great yeah. as well. It just the psychology was on, on was on another level. So those are all thoughts on the greatness of Randy Orton as he celebrates 20 years in WWE tonight on Monday Night Raw, where he get beat up most likely. But in Scott's scenario, let's hope he RKO's a whole lot of people, preferably lower job people on the card and not top tier talent to end the night on a high note. And with that, let's put a bow on the wrap with our guilty pleasure slash avoid at all costs, pick of the weeks, the things we love and did not love so much about WWE this week. So Jeremy, what are your picks for guilty pleasure? And that one thing we should just say no to. All right. We did not nearly cover and give enough credit. And I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna bypass guilty pleasure and just say MVP of the week for me. We did not talk about them enough, but pretty deadly was fantastic this week. Mm-hmm. Every time that they uh the fully produced uh team that they are uh in nxt compared to what everything else is going on it is a breath of fresh air and as long as they're there i'm i'm still going to enjoy uh nxt with that said avoid at all costs crow's nest ledges (laughs) with people who want to push you off of them that bad and you should know better if you are a world champion that you want to crush this guy into a pulp that you allow him to do that to you that bad don't do that that's my shame moment all right scott your turn guilty pleasure and what should we avoid from wwe this week oh well so i'm i'm avoid joe gacy at all costs for for multiple reasons beside him being a, a serial pusher uh it's a it's a dangerous thing that that's starting now uh pushing it's a new craze that the the heels in wwe do so be very very aware of him so skip him at all costs uh where was harlan by the way i would have i mean <laughs> where was he at on the ledge how come he didn't push him down that would have been a much stronger push a much firmer push um as far as my guilty pleasure i've been begging for this for for weeks I've been talking about this for weeks, saying that WWE needs to bring this back. They need to utilize this more, especially with this thin roster. And they did it this week, and I thought it was great. Um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna acknowledge them for it. We got a squash match. Gunther was in a squash match, and it was it was. I mean, this is this is all I want. Why can't we have this more often? This is what needs to be happening with guys, and you can do this with established guys. You can just have a guy go out there and just get mauled through. This was great. Gunther looked great. Um, Ludwig on the outside. Strum and the Symphony was fantastic. Uh, His opening promo. They look great on that huge stage. I mean, the the red looks fantastic. Um, 
I can't say enough about the presentation so far of, of Gunther and, and, and Ludwig. So, yeah, that's my guilty pleasure. They, I look forward to SmackDown now for them to see what they're going to do next. Absolutely. Skip Joe Gacy. It's unanimous. Just don't watch that shit, y'all. Just don't. Skip. Avoid. My guilty pleasure is actually related to Gunther and Ludwig, who I adore as well. It actually goes to my dude, our our guy on commentary, Pat McAfee, because he had a couple of lines on SmackDown that had me rolling. First, the guy that Gunther, that Gunther squashed, Teddy Goods was his name, I believe. And he told Teddy, hey, Teddy, you might die today. <laughs> <laughs> like, what? Pat, you Yikes. told this man, you, you know what? You might check out of here today against Gunther. Like, what words of encouragement, Pat? But the cherry on top was actually during the contract signing when the contract for Ronda Rousey and Charlotte Flair went missing. And he said on a live mic on Fox, what kind of USFL amateur hour is this? <laughs> that, that and I'm old. like... Pat McAfee, our Charles Barkley of not giving a fuck on commentary, you do realize Fox owns the USFL. And you said that on live mic. I wonder if it made the replay on Fox's YouTube channel for SmackDown. But Pat fucking McAfee, zero chill, refuses to back down from the most liveliest of comments, including shading Fox's own football league. That was a great shit. And with that, this wraps up another entertaining episode of The Wrap right here on the Fake Media Network. As always, I want to thank Scott and Jeremy for joining me for the laughs, the shade, and the commentary on all things WWE for this week. Definitely Team Extreme this week, right? And <laughs> 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 <Hey>, right, Keela. <laughs> I want uh, the, the to team is going Broadway. I'd like to thank you for inviting me to this Broadway match. Who's do, who's doing the one, two, three? <laughs> I just want to clarify for the record that if we're going team extreme, I am Matt Hardy from 2002 and not 2022. <laughs> okay, because I I cannot carry Scott in that state. Mm-mm. Oh, man. no, sir. And he fucking tried it, but <laughs> he knows he knows. Listen, we make a, we make a great team. And, uh, you know, I, I give you all the props as far as you shine me up real nice. And, and then all I got to do is just jump off the top rope. That's all I got to do and just make sure I duck my head in time. Look, you know? everybody gets excited when they hear the music and you guys come on out to do your thing. That's, do, that's do, what it comes do, down do, to. Do. <laughs> And then when they're all done, they're just like, delete, delete, delete. (laughs) Jeremy coming through with the last shot. Oh, This was Jeremy's final appearance on this show, by the way. This was a pleasure. This was in the notes. (laughs) This this was in the notes he was telling us about. He had this all planned out. Right in the thing down as I go. (laughs) The list of Feinstone, the last shot, the last shot on me and Scott. And you know what? Now we can really say it's a wrap. And we'll be back next week covering all things WWE as the road continues to WrestleMania backlash. So for myself, for Scott, and for Jeremy, that's a wrap on all things WWE. Bye bye.